again, I got to say, so most of the realism, they, they, they tried their best with the realism and stuff, and, and it worked out pretty well. But skipping to the point about the um, about everything that was going on outside, it came time to film on the inside. So um, I get invited to to come and see this, and I remember uh, I was I had my father's car, and that night i couldn't drive my father was out so i had to take the train the end train from my house to, to 8th avenue i remember getting off and uh, 8th avenue by the club it was packed jam trailers cops ambulances everything it took me 15 minutes to finally for them to actually let me in because i had to wait for somebody to go get somebody else to make sure he's all right and you had the walkie-talkies and that was my first um uh first time i ever seen a, a, a movie being made. And by this time, they know who John Travolta is. And the only reason why I know who he is is because my little brother had a lunchbox. And the lunchbox said Sweat Hog. And then, coincidentally, like the next week, he was on the cover of TV Guard, that, that TV Guard that she showed. And I kind of put it together. But he had long hair in the movie. Right, his hair was longer. And um, I had never met John Travolta up until that night. And it was very weird because um, they were filming, uh, I forget what scene it was, the first night I was there. The reason I, I do use that as a lead is because they had uh, Paramount, the production company, in the script wanted to give, right, they wanted to give the, the place some kind of like, you know, color and make it nice because it was a shithole. All back then, this is this was all mirrors back then. You could barely see the Christmas lights, but this this light over here with the the the, the what do they call them? Helicopter lights. And that dance floor was put in by a company called Light Lab, and it was just just for the movie. I I think at the beginning they were just going to use it for the movie, then they were going to take it out or, or whatever. Now I had no idea it was even there. Of course, it was covered. All the equipment was on because they were filming parts that uh, were facing out from the floor. So all the, the cameras and all the, the tarps and everything that was there was covering the floor. So I had no idea. And I'm in there watching this filming and, and all of this stuff. And the next thing I know, Chuck comes up to me and says, you want to meet George Walter? I'm like, well, okay, fine. I walk up to the stage and he's sitting in a chair on a bar, uh, the old bar stools, and they're putting makeup on him. He's got the white suit on, and I mean, I wasn't starstruck. Of course, like I really didn't know him. I mean, I, I knew, but once I got closer, I realized it was him. And and, and he says, uh, "John, this, this is Ralphie. He's the DJ." And he goes, "Oh, hey, how you doing?" And I says, "Wow, I says, you got to cut your hair." And he goes, "Yes, I'm still getting used to it." And he goes. Um, you're from Brooklyn, right? I'm like, yeah. Says, you're going to be around? I'm like, yeah. He says, do me a favor. If you hear anything in my dialogue that sounds weird, the way I'm saying it, I would appreciate if you would say something. And I'm really? Okay, fine. Yeah, I never had a chance. So did you notice his accent sound authentic for a guy from the hood? Well, that was not me. He, he, he talked like this. I'm from Englewood, New Jersey. And, you know, I used to like to do this, but not Brooklyn, so far. I mean, that's why when I heard that, I'm like, okay, that, I would think he's going to change. That's why I said you're going to change your accent for because I didn't hear any dialogue yet. And the only dialogue he had to appear in was uh, um, when they asked extra here, extras, extras. 
and truck goes, truck, remember, they were there the whole week before. And the truck is already in the movie. He's in the corner. The father's in the movie over here. And he's a bouncer here and all that. I think we got Chuck's picture with you and Roman. That's it. Yeah, there you go. That's right. Yes. Yes. That's Charlie the owner next to me. Charlie's um, left to you. Charlie's to the owner. That's his father. Right. You, and that's DJ Lee Trophy. Chuck's the tall guy. And Roman Ricardo. Roman. Up, uh, yeah, Roman Ricardo ended up doing really, really well for himself. Uh, worked with Vito Bruno. He, he produced uh, Noel, Silent Morning. He played at 1018 years later. Roman was a good guy. Yes. And Roman. he was Chuck's friend. And every once in a while, he will, will come and play. But he, he comes into the picture a little bit later. But I want to show Chuck just to, so people can see. Yeah, Chuck. yeah. So Chuck was was like a really cool guy. He was. Um, so, but, yeah. see, let me ask you something. Did Chuck realized, like like you, you're not starstruck at all. Was he calm and cool about this whole thing? Was it more about money for the club? There you go. How about this? Try to picture this. Nobody, nobody, even. Travolta himself, I believe, I mean, I didn't ask him, but had any idea, no inclination, no, that's going to be good. It was just zero. all these zero. Not even zero. Like, maybe it's going to be big. Zero, zero, zero. And because, again, it was later on, we find out it was a part of a three-picture deal. It was Saturday Night Fever. Greece, and then he signed for a third one. I forget what it was. They, they don't even mention it. But the Saturday Night Fever was supposed to be like a small, it was low budget. If you look at the movie and see how that was shot at, and later on, you know, when you start looking at movies, you kind of get it. I mean, the, the, the lighting, the, the takes, the, the cameras they used, uh, looking at, at a high budget movie, you could kind of get it. But then I wasn't smart enough to look at that and never did I think to look at that. But I guess everybody oh, had to do that. Why would you? You said this is the first time you ever saw a filming. Oh, yeah. so anything that you're seeing done looked like a yeah, real. It's great, you know. And to me, right. you guys remember they had a crew. There's a there's lighting technicians. There's riggers. There's the microphone people. There's all that stuff that's there happening all the time. Action clip. Exactly. Actually, I had that thing. I'll explain. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was um, again. It was kind of cool. I, I would stay. They would start filming in the club about uh, in, in early in the morning, and they would finish really, really late at night. And I think I would I don't know, leave like one, two o'clock in the morning, whatever. Or maybe I'd get lucky. Somebody drove me home. But um, the funny, the next funny thing was they had asked for extras. Chuck says you want to be, you know, you want to be in the background. You know, I'm in the background. My girlfriend's in the background. This is in the background. And remember, I didn't see these were things that were in the can already. I didn't see any of the dance floor. Yeah. You were in the background by the mirrors, right? No, 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 that's Alex. That's Alex. That's Chuck's cousin. No, but I'm yeah. saying is, as far as backgrounds that you guys were filming, you were in the club on the walk. And what were you? Right, right. They were filming from that wall, looking to the. A matter of fact, let me see where I am. Yeah. So hold on, let me get my finger. So. They were filming, they were filming, uh, yeah, the camera was this way, was gotcha. pointing that way. No, I'm sorry, pointing towards towards the girl, pointing towards the red dress from that corner. So that's why the part that I had seen, the dance floor was covered. They weren't using that room. They were using the room as where to get the shots from. They were focusing in on the hallway, the but doors in the hallway. The floor, the tin floor was pretty level, right? All of a yeah, sudden, it was level on the floor. Yeah, it was a regular level. Yeah. So now you come into work, 
you see the floor was raised, right? Yeah. But I only saw that after. I think the first time I was in there and I, and I, I got in that background part, I never even knew that floor was there. It was really kind of weird. But what it had was the first part, the first background part I got in, but it never made the cut was I was standing there. He runs out of the club after he gives the girl the prize. Uh, I think he deserved this. And he takes the girl and he's running out. And as he's walking out, he's just shithole. And he runs out. Well, I just happened to guy. I happen to be at there when the guy says, "Okay, extras, you stand here, you stand here, you stand here." And the guy took my arm, put my arm up against the wall like this, and there was a girl in front of me this way. And he says, "When John runs by you, he's going to brush the side of you. All I want you to do is this, go like this, go like this, continue your conversation." And they did it like five times. I said to myself. You know, the camera's like, I'm the freaking movie. Oh, my God. This oh. is cool. I'm the movie. Now, thinking that it, what it was going to become. But um, then the next week I came in, and that's when I saw the dance floor. That's when they were filming the, what song is it? The one and a woman thing, and she has the white dress on. Yeah. And extras. And... They put us by the door, and there's a, a, a shot where you could see it. I got like a brown leather jacket on with a, a like a yellowish shirt, like a Kiana shirt on, and I had a cigarette. I was like, eh. and I'm just like this by the door. I was only on maybe 15 seconds, but if you really look at the that that scene was done a couple of times. And there's a part in it where you first you see me there and they show you another shot from the same thing and I'm not there. Of course, I wasn't there that day. That's how they put those things together, which is really, really weird. So um, I'm thinking that I'm in this movie. Now I'm looking at this, these lights and all of this stuff and I'm like, wow, you know, this is really, really cool still. Nobody's got any idea, any, any inclination of how this is going to go. And next thing I know, uh, it's December. They stopped filming. Now, this is an important part, very important. While this is going on, a lot of people around the world, except if you're in, if you're in New York and you're of the age, you remember there was a serial killer. Yeah, let me go to that picture. Yeah. Hang on, let's go here. Let's go to the picture. Big, big, big. There it is. Right. Son of Sam. Son of Sam was a serial killer who terrorized. New York. First, I think he started in the Bronx and he went to Queens and his MO was to kill girls with, what was it, blonde hair or black hair and the girls with dyeing their hair? I can't remember. One of the two. is either if the blonde, so anybody that went, any of the girls that went out, they always dyed their hair or they, he liked long hair and everybody cut their hair short. <laughs> yeah. So, clubs at the time, the attendance in the clubs were dwindling because people was scared to go out. Now remember, this, they had cops, detectives, private people, mob people looking for this guy. And how many years did it, was he? I think it. Wow. Good, good three, four years. I think he started yeah. 76. Yes, yeah, 77. Yeah, 76, 77. July 4th, so. July 4th of the year, was he caught him or something around that? Um, August. August, August. 78. They caught him. And well, unfortunately, actually, my, one of my friends, the guy, I mean, I don't know him that well, but I knew him. Robert Violante was the last guy. I mean, you know, he lived through it. And the girl that he was with passed away. He got shot in the head. It was terrible. 
But um, that was, uh, you know, clubs were kind of weak. So when they closed 2001 down for the filming, I remember, I, I, you know, I, I, actually, there was another thing I had. Uh, club is going to be closed from September 4th until, I don't know, whatever, it's October 5th or whatever for filming. And that was it. I still have that somewhere. I thought I would have found it. But um, you got simultaneously all of this stuff is going on. And then I come to work one day and Charlie hands me the flyer and he says, okay, announce this. And now people are starting to come back. The people that used to come to the club now notice this dance floor. And they say, what's this thing? It's great. They're filming a movie here. Still, nobody has any freaking clue. What this is going to do, it's just okay, movie crank. And if you look at this, the writing on this thing, admission $10, you had to wear a suit jacket. Guys, guys back then, when we went out, we wore college shirts, like a chain, never tall really, but three piece suits. You want it to look good. And women look good. That's what I really miss. That's why at that point, you got to remember, disco was still not a household name at the time. It was still underground. But when you went out, you were a young teenager going out. You remember, the drinking age was 18. Everybody went out and looked good. And Be in lights, meet the stars, meet the press, party with us all night. Jackets are required. Yep. Big admission. And this is 1977, folks. Ten dollars. That was a lot of money then. Very cool. You Absolutely. can't get people to pay ten dollars now. Well, they, yeah, you would say now you had to pay ten dollars seventy-seven. It's yeah. a world premiere. Now, by this time, everybody knew that this movie was coming out, and there was a buzz happening about it. But again, I can't even stress to you that it, it nobody had any idea, any idea. So, long story short, here's the moment where my life just goes from this. Hang on, Ralphie. So, you got the premiere thing. He says, announce it. So, you yeah. tell Chuck. I mean, we had this conversation. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to right now. I know what you're talking about. You got to tell well, Chuck tells you. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm DJing in the early in the night, and I announce it. And then Chuck comes in to play. And he announced it, and I was like, you know, I, I can't wait to freaking see this thing, man. It's going to be cool. I mean, I can't believe I'm going to be oh, excited. You're going to the premiere, right? You're going to the yeah, premiere. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm getting dressed. I got it all. I'm getting a haircut. I'm doing everything. I can't wait. Chuck goes, you can't go to the premiere. <laughs> and I look at him. I'm thinking he's What are you talking me. about? What do you mean? I can't, I can't go to the premiere. What's the way he's talking about? You can't go to the premiere. You got to DJ the, the party, the, the, the after party for it. And I'm like, so what? What's the big deal? Ralph, the premiere is in Brighton. It's like right here. As soon as that movie's over, everybody's coming in. You got a TV, this and that. So at first, I, I, I took it as a freaking insult. I can't freak out. Are you serious? And I got kind of dickheads. He says, Ralph, listen to me. You could always go see the movie Sunday. You need to see it that night. And you know what? I'll tell you how you looked when, when I come back from it. <laughs> I'll tell you how you, you look. Yeah, I'll tell you how you look. I'm like, I'm fine. So, I, I, again, I don't know where my head was at. I'm a, I'm a skinny little idiot kid. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. But now I didn't realize that this was the beginning 
of the, <laughs> of the Greek exchange. I had no idea what's coming. Long story short, the premiere night comes. I come and try to park my father's car. You can't park anywhere. I'm talking about the. it was blocked off for four blocks all the way around each way. You couldn't get anywhere near this thing. And I finally get a spot and I'm walking. And maybe I'm at 10 records. And when you go uh, and get records, you take them in, in with you. And I look, I see, you know, remember those old, I think they still got them, the old TV antennas on the trucks. Channel 2, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 6, uh, Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, Channel... Unbelievable. I'm like, whoa. Now, seeing that at the beginning, maybe a a, a microcosm of when they were filming outside, but this was no joke. So now, I, I walked in, I got in very fast this time because the guy remembered me. I had the records. I walk in and I remember there were wires. Get to wrap these boots. Thick wires running from outside spotlights and and mobile setups for TV and and all when I got in that booth, I couldn't I couldn't even breathe. I had people, 15 people asking me 15 different things at the same time. And I'm just like, look, all I want to do is play. I gotta put music on. I gotta, what am I just, hold on, we get the light here. Because they, they were setting up location spots where channel two was by the door. So they wanted to make sure they got their lights right. And then channel four was here. And then this So that was the, the beginning of like, what the hell is going on here? And then the next thing I know, people start coming in. It was pandemonium. That was the first night I played by myself in, in the club. Wasn't that night that picture was, oh. started, but that's the booth, obviously. And um, it was, it was so surreal. Now I go back to the same thing. Now remember, I was brought up uh, with like a nervous situation. I was beside myself. I didn't know my, I was, my hands were shaking to the freaking point where now I'm trying to mix songs together. And as I'm trying to mix songs, I got somebody in my ear over here. And then I got somebody in my ear here. Can you stop the music? There's no, we can't stop the music so you can have a thing. No, it, it was so wild. And so something I've just never experienced before. I actually couldn't wait for it to end because I was so scared of this unknown thing. Here I am, this little kid with this all of a sudden, boom, like just shot out of a rocket and being thrown in the middle of this thing. That's, I still, still had no idea, no clue of what this would become after. I'm just blown away by what's happening that night. And now I'm like, oh my God. And a lot of a lot of that night after was kind of a blur, but I remember the next day my phone was ringing off of my aunts, my cousins, the guys down the block. This one, that one. I saw you. I saw you on TV because, like, the filming, you know, they would sweep it and they would come up to the booth and go like this. And that that film exists somewhere. 
I know Chuck had, but unfortunately Chuck passed away. Somebody's got it. Maybe I got to ask Denise if she has it. But just like I became, I was one person and then I transformed into another. And I didn't know how to handle it. And that was a really bad part about it because, you know, what do I do? Now, now this picture is, is um, actually a year later when I was named DJ of the year 79. But a lot of stuff. <laughs> A lot of stuff happened in between that. I mean, I look—I must look like I'm yeah, really cool. I'm happy and everything. But man, yeah, there you go. That was uh, probably two, three months uh, into it. All those guys that are—they uh, were dancers. They were doing a show, coordinating it, and they were, and they were doing all sort of stuff. And I was—I uh, don't know what song that is. It looks like it's Polygram, but <laughs> I couldn't tell you what song it was. But that's when finally started to change. And but you got a lot going yeah. on. You got, you got. So, so oh. now, so, so, tell us the the phones are ringing. You, you are. This is crazy. You go from Ralphie, the kid down at Lizzo, yeah. to yeah. Ralphie, the guy from Holy Smoke. Oh my God! And within, I don't know, maybe about a week or two, there were lines in that place to get in that place uh, i have never seen anything like this uh, remember i am i have a nervous condition i have almost like stage fright but not particularly stage fright and I, I really honestly think about it now how i was able to do it and what was happening was i had friends of mine that i i, I had friends that i had never knew i went from being like an introvert kind of guy to people from my junior highs, people I went to grammar school with, but people were bringing their cousins from Long Island or who's from Boston on the block. And, and it was all pressure. It was pressure. Plus, you know, the papers. A lot of pressure. Oh, yeah. That, this is going to be, this is a real good story. Nobody knows. That Saturday Night Order. Anyway, we're in 1978, and this thing is happening. Now I joined the record pool. Um, IDRC, you become IDRC. IDRC, right? Look, Bin 38 as me. And if you look back then, Bin 39 is actually John Donato. I didn't even know him then, but uh, it's, he freaked out when I when I posted that. So uh, I just got to find that in some old, in some old pictures. So here I am, um, 1978, everything is blowing up. It's freaking huge. We got Gloria again. And the Phyllis, you named the acts that come in. And now I got record promoters coming, bringing me test pressing. So here I am trying to play music and trying to concentrate playing on music. And this gets shoved under my nose. That gets shoved under my nose. Drinks, uh, other things being shoved under my nose and it, it, <laughs> came a point, it got to a point where I, I was I wasn't enjoying it as much as I thought I was enjoying it it was too much of a stress for me because I was so into mixing the songs correctly you don't want to make a mistake and do something that people go oh, it's terrible and i was very 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 conscious of that at a very young age not to do you know not to try to make any mistakes and it was you know how can you concentrate when you know it's felt bad for like a guy like richie kazor or like a robbie leslie or anybody that worked at studio 54 at the time because here yeah, these these guys are trying to play music at, at one of the most famous clubs in the world and you got 
people coming out over your show. It was, I know what that was like. And that was not cool. Now the record promoters, they were somewhat, they somewhat knew that, you know, they would give it to me and I would know, and either way, I would get the record at the pool beforehand. Yeah. That, that's another thing that was, uh, taken in 78 was the New York times magazine and they did a whole thing. Now disco is becoming huge. It's becoming big, really, really big. And now I'm starting to realize that this is more than just a movie. This is like a big thing. Everybody, you got to remember the baby boom generation was one of the, one of the times where more kids were born in that era from 49, I think to 65. And there was everything to hang out at that time or other clubs opened. It was, it, it, it was just pandemonium. Everything revolved around that. And I was in the center of this hurricane spinning around, spinning around and friend girls, I was just I was, celebrity at this point. You're a celebrity. I was getting dragged from here to here to here to here. And then when you start that starts happening, you start getting people that know you. That I had a couple of friends that, that were really good friends that started to think for me and started to see what was happening. And they became like started to become buffers for me where I had to have somebody stand by that boot. I mean, I'm getting offered. Uh, you name it. That's later on. That's eighty four. That's in promotions. Later. But I'm just saying. Could you imagine? Everybody's wanting to get into the food. Jesus Christ! Oh my God! It was absolute, absolute. Raffi. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I would. And let's say here's a for instance. Uh, um, the Village People. The first place they ever performed was at 2001 in front of a crowd anywhere else. First time. And they were really, really cool. Now you got to you look at the bills. Oh, right. look, look at the graphics that they did. Yeah. Parker. Yeah. Now, that was probably Charlie who wrote that. You know, they right. kept the top and they just changed the middle, the village people. And next week it was Rory and Dane or whatever. Scissor, scissor cup, put the new part, and they went the Xerox machine went like this. Yep. Turned themselves. And he's going like this. They put, and that was it. Exactly. And those are all over the walls. And they, then they put it on the walls around on all the telephone poles and they yeah. That was it. Uh, and that's how that's how they promote it. Look at this number S H five. Yeah, nine six one one. Yeah, <laughs> because S-H. that area in Brooklyn where the numbers would be on the rotary dial. Yeah, that's right. Oh, S was I think seven seven four five. I can't remember. I think it was yeah seven. Yeah, it was seven seven. Yeah. So oh, now my life is 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 changed. Now now I'm um not that skinny little yeah, movie introverted, star. introverted kid. But yet I, I have to bring this up because it's part of my life. I was I was depressed. I grew up depressed. I had a chemical imbalance in my body from being it, it just being a little kid and being yelling, screaming, all that stuff. I there were certain things that I couldn't do when I would have a nervous situation. I would get panic attacks at 14, 15 years old, panic attacks. And here I am in one of the most famous clubs in the world in front of all these people. And I'm trying to do this now. What, what kind of subdued the panic attacks was that I had to concentrate on the music. And when I was concentrating on the music, it was okay. But 
when I would pick my head up and go to change the I don't know how to pull stand. I know how I did. I, I really don't know. But it became, after a while, it became a um, like second nature. So I had a gatekeeper and everything was cool. But getting back to the village people, this club is packed. And now I'm, the DJ boot was behind the stage. So when, when right before the show goes on, people that are dancing want to come up to the stage and get a good view of the stage. And I'm playing. I got my head down. And my friend, I remember him leaning up to me. And he goes, look at all these girls. And I remember picking my head up and the whole front, you like this. People like this. Look at Now, I'm like, that's when I, I, I kind of got it. And, and when the show would go off, so long, excuse me, I would walk down. And that's when, hey, Robbie Rose, this is my sister. This is this, this is this. Let me tell you something. I was never a womanizer. I never abused women. I was always good. And at any, yeah, but you're okay, Ralphie. Come on. I was, I, I was, I do got to say, I was good. You got the wife beater shirt on. You got yeah, 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 yeah. I was, good, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was pretty good. And by, by this time, and the other thing is, remember, you're in the hottest discotheque in the well, land, in the yeah. world. That what, what also comes with that are problems. <laughs> With, with a lot of guys. I had, I had guys that didn't even know me. They didn't even know me. They hated me. Why? Because here I am. I'm, I'm in this club. And you got to remember, by this time now, it's in the culture. Disco is in the culture. Everybody went out. Everybody got dressed. And they're thinking, they want to go meet a girl. And here I come. Guy sitting there, knows the girl over there. Loves and I come over, and the girl starts talking to me. And the guy's like, you got to be fucking, you fucking serious. So, through no fault of mine, I'm not trying to be a big show where I fuck you and walk away. I was never like that. But what also used to happen too is back then, if you came to a club, a central place, and you were from like Canarsie, you were from uh, Bessers, whatever, if you met a girl and you went out to date them, you had to go pick them up where they lived, obviously, later on when you dated them. People, guys were very, very were not cool about people out of the neighborhood coming to date their sisters and coming to date their cousins. Well, I, I used to get a pass for that, actually, because most of the time, if I would go date somebody, somebody knew who I was. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, he's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ralphie, by the way, let's see what you going to let me in next week. Yeah, no problem. So, Ralphie, got me covered. No problem. I got you covered. Yeah, yeah sometimes it works, sometimes it didn't. And then the next um, step, so now we established, I'm at this place. I'm um, um, doing all of this stuff. Everything is is happening. And then... Another turning point happens when the movie is, it's got to be around March 78, something like that. I just happened to pull into a gas station in, in, um, in Ensign Nurse. Give me, I don't know what you put in a car, but that's had five dollars, ten dollars, whatever. And I'm with my friend and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I look and I see this car backed into a parking spot in the gas station. I'm like, Wait a second. The freaking car from the freaking movie. Now remember, the movie had, had just it was just becoming popular. People see it, but I knew that car because I'd seen all the rushes and all the the, the parts. I'd seen the movie how many times. Oh my god! I get out, I walk up, and it's the car. I'm looking around. I'm turning. Now the window is smashed, front slide window, and there's no fender on the car. I'm like. 
what's it doing here? So I get out. Oh, the guy comes over, we'll pump the guests. And we'll, this guy, I forget what his name is. And he tells me, uh, whatever. I said, who's Clark? And he goes, where's my car? It was, um, he actually ended up being, which I found out later, was a, a guy that was a little bit slow. He was an older black guy. I forget what his name was. Well, I think you know, I had a sign papers anyway. Then we're going to gas station again. But long story short, I said, you want to sell the car? And he says, yeah, I'll sell the car. How much you won't give me for it? And I says, I don't know. Remember, it's a 1963 Impala. The car was six colors. It had holes in it with the camera mounts when they were filming it. The windshield was busted and all the stuff. I think I offered him like $200 or $250. He goes, in the movie, guys, remember when John and them all they bust through the front of this place where the, the Puerto Rican oh, and they had the big fight? Well, that's the car he's talking about. He's looking at. So if you go back to the movies, where you right? Know. That's why a lot of people have never seen Saturday Night Fever, which maybe you'll go to look at. Saturday Night Fever, and this yeah. time you never saw it. You'll see they bust through the front and they have a big fight, a brawl, and that's the car he's talking about. Right. And what happened was they used that. It was one of the last scenes they filmed in the movie. I found out, and when they busted through, the door came down and broke the window, and the fender started to hit the wheel well. So they just took the fender off to get the car to be drivable and they left the hole in the window. So most of short, I didn't have $200 on me. So I, I, I had money home. I think my friend had, we, we, we scraped the money together. I come back, that gives me the registration and I'll never forget that. This is where it gets hairy. The original name of the movie was Saturday Night. It was not Saturday Night Fever. That, became, that came after. The working title was called Saturday Night. So the registration said Saturday Night Production Corporation the guy who signed it is Melt Felsen. And if you look at the credits in the movie later on, I realized that he was a uh, associate producer or whatever. And the car, I found out, uh, unfortunately, later on, was insured by Lords of London for like $3 million. You know, it's, a, it's a movie. Car and McGuff, they, they, they run somebody over. Some. They needed the money to have it insured. So um, apparently they left the car there. Because one of the last scenes they did, I forget what, I really didn't find out. All I knew, that was the call. So I drive it home. Guy signs the um, bill sale. And I go home. So I leave the car in my friend Mark Levine's garage, <laughs> my Coney Island hospital. And I leave the car in. And I started looking at it. The, the one side of the car had ball tires because in the movie they do those spin outs and with the with the water on the street. So that's how they did it. Put good tires on one side, bad tires on the other way to get the car to spin. Open up the hood, there were new shocks. I mean, the motor was worked on, everything was cool. But me, I didn't care about that. It was the car from the movie. So back then, I, I guess trying to tell you how Brooklyn was. We would get away with a lot of stuff. And I never even bothered to ensure or register the car. I would keep the papers in my pocket. I mean, I had gotten pulled over a few times. And they when I got pulled over, the cops, the cops from a couple of the times you got pulled over, they recognized it was you from no, the one, one or two of them did, but the other time um I had that I got pulled over in Bay Ridge and I mentioned Charlie from the club and they were in the same precinct and they're like, oh, God, just watch yourself, whatever. So we <laughs> Now, Charlie, Charlie, rest in peace, he sees the car, and he's like, I got an idea. Let's put the car inside the club. Now, 
a lot of you probably didn't. How do you put the car inside the cup? 2001 had tiers like this. So the uh, the entrance is on 64th Street, which was the lowest tier when you walk in. But if you look in that movie, you'll see where they sat was up tier up. And then there was a tier higher. And then there was finally a third tier. And that third tier was, was on the 8th Avenue side. And there were doors on the side, like movie doors. Like when you go to a movie theater, you open up the doors. So what we did was we got the police barricades, used, made ramps out of them. And we backed the car onto the tin dance floor that was on the top. Because it was always a tin dance floor on the top. and was there since the beginning. Biggest mistake we made. And everybody, they were taking headlights, windshield wipers. <laughs> they had to put a they had to put a bounce in there to make sure that nobody took anything. And then it was also a problem because there was sharp objects. There was a fender missing, and the window was was blown out. So we had to take the car out of there. And there's only one one picture that exists of that car. Who would think that at that time in my life? Nobody would have taken a picture of this car. One picture, and it's that dirty picture that you showed before of the front, and I think Vito Bruno is in there. Yeah, that picture. And you can see the left side, there's like a, 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 it's a table court over the fender. And that is the only picture that exists of that car. And you would think that at least I would be near it. No, only picture. So, again... This this is where things start taking uh, taking a life of its own. Okay, uh, um, I'm driving the car around. No, no, uh, um, I'm too busy being a kid. I'm going to Wildwood. I'm uh, worried about what I'm going to wear next day. I'm worried about what girl I'm going to go with. I'm worried about what club I'm going to guest DJ in. I'm doing all this stuff. So what happens is. I leave the car on the street. Back then, we put dummy plates on a car or whatever. And Charlie was saying, when are you going to register this car? When are you going to register this car? Yeah, after the summer, after the summer. Long story short, I had this lady on my corner. She hated me. Hated me. And I left the car there for a weekend. I went to Wildwood. And the car got towed away by sanitation. Now, when I came back, I was like, oh, my God. I can't believe what the hell. Still not thinking of the implications of do you have any have any idea how much this car is going to be worth with the in one of the biggest movies of the 70s stupidity you're not, those, you're, not you're not acting that way you're not thinking no, no. no the first thing from my freaking mind you're thinking more like hey i'm i'm having fun exactly and I'm not thinking about late. You're not thinking. You're thinking. You're talking now as the grown up. Then you're not thinking like the grown up. And now here comes the next change. <laughs> Another change. <laughs> you can't. You can't make this shit up. Oh, it's I'll, real. I've been interviewing. Oh, this, is real. this is real. I've been interviewed hundreds of times about that era. This is the first time that yeah. this is going. This is going to be said because. It just, it was just so freak. Anyway, um, I go, I, I, I go to work in Odyssey one night, and, and Charlie, rest in peace, comes up to me and he goes, "Let me ask you a question. Getting any trouble lately?" And I'm like, "What do you mean trouble? You know, police fight this? And, no way. You know, well, it was a detective here looking for you, like what? a detective." 
What's that? This means caught. I actually had the thing. I've had to pay. I just looked at it. I don't know what I did. Anyway, the guy's name is on it. I'm like a 60-second precinct. How is this? That's near me. That's in uh, Bensonhurst. The club is in Bay Ridge. No, I have no idea. So I remember getting up the next morning, and I go to my father, and I said, Dad, that's his card. Cop wants me to go down to the precinct, and he goes, for what? And I said, I have no idea. He says, did you do anything? I says, no. <laughs> my father answered me in typical fashion. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you didn't do nothing. That's the way my father was. But by then, I was a little bit older. I wasn't really scared of him at the time. So he says, I'll go with you. We go down to the 62nd precinct, walking in. Detective's upstairs in the room. Okay, I go with my father. We sit in this room. Detective comes in. He goes, you know why you're here? <laughs> I'm like, no. Okay. He goes, uh, did you buy a car from somebody? And I'm like, yeah, it was a couple months ago, wasn't it? Well, there seems to be a problem. I'm like, oh, what's the problem? You never paid the guy and you stole the car. He's talking about you never paid the guy, stole the car. Here's the bill of sale right here. No, no, wait. Uh, how did I, I had the bill. I, I think I, I, I knew, I can't remember because I had, I wouldn't have, it's, it's, it's contradicting myself because I wouldn't have had the bill of sale. Oh, I had the, the, paper, the papers of the car in my pocket. For whatever reason. Ask me to go back and she said, oh, I should have never said that. I can't remember. But anyway, I had the papers on if I went to get them. Huh? Wait, you didn't have the papers when you went to, with your father because you didn't know. No, I, I, I believe I went home to get them. I was okay. my father still there. They know I'm not leaving. My father's there. And I come back and I bring the papers. There was an envelope, bill of sale, well, registration, a new registration where you got to fill in the green one and I had filled in. And he goes, um, that's all you got? And I'm like, yeah, why? And he goes, well, according to uh, blah, 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 you signed his name. You're telling me that this guy is saying that I took this car. He gave me the papers. And I took this car. So why would I do that? It doesn't make sense. He says, I'll tell you why you did it. Because we know where the car came from. And we know what the car is worth. You said you paid $250. That's when they told me, you realize this car was, was insured by Lords of London? Do you realize that this car was in Saturday night? Well, of course you do, because you're the DJ there. That's how I found you. That's how we know. Now, everything is pointing to me. And if you look at the cop and what he's saying, I'm like, but that's not the way it happened. He goes, hold on. He leaves, goes in the other room. The guy who sold me the car ends up being simple-minded. He was a worker that worked for the guy. They just left the papers of the car there. They didn't give, they just left it. I don't know if they were supposed to come back for it or whatever they were supposed to do, but that was never his car. He took the money, put it in his pocket. Put the money in his pocket. Now my father, you stupid freaking moron. Oh, in front, now my father is cursing me in front of the detective. I don't mean to laugh, excuse me. I don't mean to laugh, but I know, I know this is not a moment you go. No. Now it's getting serious because the detective comes back and he says, well, there's a very easy way out of it. Give us back the car. Let me give him the car and you'll walk out of here. Now I'm like, oh, 
my God. There is no car. There is no car. <laughs> Shit. Rather than going to the little details of whatever happened, next thing I know, I got handcuffs on me. My father's fucking that, that day? That day, yeah. They're, they're, they're charging me grand larceny, forged. Now, there was a newspaper strike in 1978. This would have definitely made the front paper because of the thing, but because it was no, there, there wasn't a newspaper strike, it wasn't on there. I wasn't in it. Um, now my father, they're threatening to lock my father up. So my father calls friends of mine who come to my house all the time and explain what happened. What do these guys go to? They decide to go to the gas station the next day and threaten the guy. But I'm talking about this kind of threat. And if you know how Brooklyn was back then, it should have been taken care of and should have ended there, but because of the car, where the car came from. And we find out that somebody had offered this guy like $25,000 for this car. So it was all about the money. It was irreversible. So I end up going through the system, going to, I had to sleep in a precinct. It was it was really 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 bad. But now my friends get arrested. I make night court. They don't. They're in Rikers Island for three days because it's a Friday. They come out on a Monday. Oh my god! Now now, I'm. I, I, this is my first offense. So it's a long story short. It cost actually. Charlie, rest in peace. The club owner paid for my lawyer. It cost that. At that time, about seventy five hundred or eighty five hundred dollars. Seventy grand. Oh, to go and do this, and and I just when, when you look at something that so so what did the what did the lawyer what was the um the plea bargain or whatever it was with the lawyer your lawyer what did he say to the judge okay. what what got me off was they did a test on this. Guy, they made him oh. do it. They realized that he was simple, and then when they started to ask him questions, he was saying this, and then all of a sudden saying that, and then say so. They used that as a ground. Like, listen, why would I go and and do this and and walk away and run away with a car where for two hundred dollars? I mean, it's I, I, it says the it says the money on there. So two hundred dollars, I'm, I'm going to do that. Right, so was it Lloyds of London pushing mm. to go to jail? The car was still insured by Lloyds of London. So Lloyds of London had to make good on this payment, basically. So what happened was, that's when Funny. the movie people had to get involved. This is the movie, movie Paramount and all of that had to get involved in this. And that was because now it started to get bigger and bigger. Now you got Paramount. Now I got now lawyers for them. And I'm like, oh, my God. How, my father... Wanted to freaking kill me. I can see that. Wanted to backslap the hell out of me. Yeah, but Brooklyn, it, it, it was terrible. They almost locked my father up. Yeah, because they looked at look the whole everybody. He's a kid. It was terrible. It was freaking. You were about 17, 18? Uh, yeah, I was just 17. Yeah, just 17. Jesus, good Christ. True house stories unraveling this. You can't make this shit up. The front cover, but it made news tonight here. 
Never, never. It's amazing. Story. True house story. So now I I'm, I go from here to here to here. <laughs> and now we're in 1979. Now it goes to the next year. We're in 79. Disco's everywhere. Okay. That's the dogs, a couple of years later. Disco is everywhere. Everything's disco, 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 disco. Boom, 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 boom. Awards, ceremonies, Grammys. Yeah. Well, now, you got to remember, and I say this, I never had a mentor. I never had somebody that told me, listen, Ralphie, this is what you got to do. You strike while the audience hot. You're, you're, you're this DJ in this club. You want to try to make records? So what you do is these promoters that are coming to the club, you got to tell them, say, listen, you want me to play your music? Let me remix a record that you got coming out. Right. Um, it, 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 like the business end of, of knowing what to do. I was too scared to even ask and know what to do. So again, it, 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 my whole life, I never had a mentor up at, you know, at that period. And it ended up costing me because God knows where I could have went from there as far as if I said, decided to say, you know what, I'm the DJ at this club. How about if we do a world tour? Now the movie's coming out all over the world. All over the world. And just imagine the parties and rock. Forget about it. God knows what would have happened after that. But I didn't think and I didn't have anybody mentoring me to let me know. So we're in 79 and then the, the next big thing that happened was the radio station, KTU. Um, the radio station was new, and I don't even think they had DJs, you know, like like uh, regular DJs. Uh, this is such and such. This is they were just filling people, and they played mixes all day. So I was a I was asked to do a re a, a version of uh, a version, uh, a mix up. It was like an hour and a half. Uh, I forget what it was called. The first one, and it happened August first. 1979. Now, August 1st, 1979, sloppy weren't born, but for me, it was a, a day that would live in infamy for the simple reason. There's another weird thing that freaking happened to me. I give them the tape. They got it. Um, uh, when they got the tape, this guy, Tony Martino, was a long enterprises, had to do a 12 West, that club 12 West in, in Manhattan. I would give them a tape on quarter inch, uh, quarter inch. They would transfer it to half inch. And up to speed to mine was in three three quarters. They would do uh, seven and seven eighths. Somewhere in the transfer, the two LEDs that are going, something happened in one of them in the transfer. Well, I had no idea. So now it's a Saturday afternoon. It's eighty eight degrees. Manhattan Beach in Brooklyn is disco beach. Girls in bikinis, all the people in the clubs, kids, there's got to be thousands, thousands, people. thousands and thousands, thousands of people there, okay? Sea of people. Yes, sea of people. Somebody has pictures of that. I'm sure people remember from Brooklyn back then. Anyway. But explain this. Hold on, everybody. Wait one second. Now, mind you, Disco 92 is on every, every single station there. That's all you heard. Oh. One radio station, the whole beach, everybody. You, hear this song? you can hear the whole beach. It's got radios. So now, at the time, I would have done it differently. I mean, now I would have done it differently. But what I did was, instead of me going to the beach when it got played at one o'clock in the afternoon. I was home well, hooking up my reel to reel 
and recording it so I can hear the DJ say my name, which is a big thing. It's great. First time I'm going to be on the radio. I still have the tape, by the way. It's on Mixcloud and my Hello, 92. Today's Master Mix is brought to you by Odyssey 2. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And that was the first time they botched my name. And they said, oh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest from 2001, Ralphie and Diago Gustino from the. Yeah, I get the casino. Rapping because Casino. Jesus Christ. Same place. And first, next song, the mix is good. Second song, the mix is good. Third song, the mix is good. Now, I'm in my house, and I just imagine everybody on the beach, everybody had it on. All of a sudden, the song was playing. This time, ba- this time baby is playing. Then, then, then all of a sudden, I start hearing. And then, <laughs> <laughs> which everybody that's listening to is hearing the same thing. I'm like, oh no. What is that? What's going on? All of a sudden, whoever the DJ was took the record this time, baby, and plays it. I am. Um, I, I couldn't even explain to you what I felt. My first time on the radio, and this happens, and they play three songs with G. Keith Alexander. I'll never forget. And three songs. Voice, he had a golden voice, though. He was a dope man. Uh, I am, I am so freaking disgusted at this point. <clears throat> and then in the middle of like the third song, they put the tape back when it was the second song. And it was okay. I'm sorry, there was something wrong with the tape. That devastated me because I told you I was come up. The mix is going to be great. It's just going to be right. And here I am. There's millions of people listening to this. They don't know. They think it's me that I'm in a studio playing. I'm doing it right there. It's me that's messing it up. Oh, my God. I got to the beach about 3 o'clock. And? What happened? But you got to remember now, here I am walking to the beach. I was just on the radio. That feeling of... Being different than everybody else was so euphoric with what I'd just done, but yet in my insides were like this because I knew that there were people that didn't like me because of that. And I still, you know, the, the nervous feeling and all of that kind of stuff. So I had to deal with this shit. And it was really, really bad. And that was like a, a, a great thing that happened here. I was like, oh, it's great. And all of a sudden, it went. So here you are, like looking hot. Yeah, yeah. Outside. 79. Oh, you're looking uh, Roseland. You're I won the DJ of the year thing. I got the trophy and I look great and smiling here, but inside, inside, I'm a messed up kid, man. You're dying inside. Yeah, I was dying inside. It was, it was terrible. That, that was the, that was a, uh, a, um, the beginning of, not the beginning, just being in the middle of, uh, of the depression. So then, um, there was the, uh, um, the, the funny kind of things, which I just just go to think of, like uh, if you're from New York, you know who Crazy Eddie was. Crazy Eddie, oh, yeah. and, uh, uh, was a very very big electronic store, and we had after the movie came out, they finally changed all the um, changed the turntables. They bought eighteen uh, hundreds, and they bought that, so we bought it all the Crazy Eddie. So they decided to film Crazy Eddie. It's insane, and they did this commercial. <laughs> it's it's really inside the club. And that's the guy, Dr. Jerry from Disco 102. He was the crazy Eddie guy. These prices are insane. And if we can't play the music now because I'll probably take it off Facebook. But 
I'm in the background. All my friends are in the background. This was like a Saturday afternoon. And this was, this was like really cool. And we, if, if you're really watching, it's just making fun of obviously the, the Saturday night favorite thing. And it was all about crazy Eddie. And you'll see it's crazy Eddie. His prices are insane. And we just, you know, this was something that was freaking <laughs> <laughs> hysterical. Oh my God. That is freaking Let's see. I think it says it. Crazy Eddie, right? Doesn't he say it? Yep. Yeah, Crazy Eddie. His prices are in Crazy Eddie TV. There you go. So, so um, you know, things like that. And by this time, now 79, you're looking at, uh, oh, now things are starting to get a bit uh, uncomfortable. Now all these clubs are opening, and uh, I'm doing this. Disco 102 thing. I was on the radio again. And finally, you know, thank God, at least the next time the, they didn't have a problem with the tape. But things are starting to get hairy. And this is where, again, you got to understand this is a microcosm of, a, of an area. This whole Saturday Night Fever thing only lasted about two years. So if you go to days, it's 300, it's like 600 days or whatever, 24 months, 23 months. But the things that happened in the 23 months, all these things are happening, but yet I'm still not right in my head, not knowing where am I going from here? What am I doing? What do I want to do? Until uh, the, the until the mixed shows happen, and then I started to get, um, um, into, you know, getting into like uh, you know, do, doing remixing and stuff like that. And if I could do that, that would be great. But again, I didn't have anybody to go up to. I didn't have like a, I wasn't friends with like a jelly bean. At the time, I had jelly bean. The people know jelly bean was like what he was able to do. That guy did it right, and he. But he had people behind him that knew. I'm not to say that he was stupid, but he had people to go off of, and they made all his right decision. Look what happened. He ended up meeting Madonna, all that stuff. But um, we're talking about um, Slate '79 now. Um, Disco was what happens with disco. Yeah, th th this was it was a really, really, really bad thing, and you know, and, and I personally started to feel it because then now there was there was kid, we would have a kitty disco in Odyssey, and the younger kids were there, and everywhere you look, get your disco haircut, get your disco this, disco shoes, disco everything was buried disco down to Burger King, to the point where it just got really 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 stupid and now it wasn't cool anymore right uh, and people now were over that now the people that were coming to odyssey were the people for that were coming from europe that wanted to see the club i mean we still now that the club was full of tourists and what ends up happening now i'm in the same club doing the same thing but now i got people filming Commercials for French TV, people interviewing me in in, in Italian, uh, just really, really, really weird stuff. And to this point now, I'm like, okay. And that's when August, I believe it was, in 79, this guy, a radio guy from Chicago, decides to do this disco demolition night. Now, in a way, you know, I can get it. Here's a guy who's a regular programmer in a top 40 radio station that now this guy's list is like 20 songs and 14 of them are BG songs. I mean, you know, 
the, the camel's the camel's back has got to break somewhere. And I get it because after one and I was, it, it, they had ballast, they had to stand. Then the younger brother, what was his name, Andy, uh, he came out with stuff, and then. It was just every beaches, 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 beaches. Now, to me, like Ed said, I kind of got a little bit, a little bit of a weird taste in my mouth, but not to the point where, you know, what the hell am I going to do? But then this thing happens, Comiskey Park in Chicago, and once that happened, that was a arrow to the brain turning point of what was to be, because in the fall of '79, I was with a couple of friends of mine at a club in Bay Ridge and I had met this girl and it was almost closing time and I had gotten out and we were sitting in my friend's car. So, you know, just seeing you know, hanging out whatever. And as I'm sitting in the car, I'll never forget these four guys come out of a bar across the street and they see me. I got like a leather jacket on, dressed like a disco guy, you know, and they had like whatever dory jackets. Disco sucks. Fuck you, you disco dick. Fuck. And now I'm by myself. These guys are drunk. They were big guys, big Irish guys. And now I'm like, I got this girl in the car and I was, I wasn't a tough guy. Good. He's got nice. I got to hunker down and I got to protect myself and this fucking girl from catching a fucking bin. I was going to catch a fucking beating. And like, like magic. I go to get out of the car. My friends are turning the corner. Five of my friends are coming towards the car and they see this. Let me give you the G, the G rated version of this, how this went down. Um, the clean version. Put it this way. If this would have, you would have done what they did to these guys, you'd be in jail today. You'd be in jail. Your life would be, you'd be in jail for the rest of your life. I mean, these guys got really, really hurt. But back then, it, it was it was a different thing. And it was every man for himself. And and how it happened was it just, that was the where it started to really get bad. Now, you know, should I keep my hair like this? Should I wear this? And that's when uh, the backlash started to get to the point where it started getting into the radio stations and this and that. Now the music that I'm playing is starting to change. And all of a sudden, um, 1980 was, it was starting to change. And at the end of 1980, I had, um, uh, the show on KTU. It was once a month. It was called studio 92, three hours. And it was still disco music. And you're looking at all the late disco stuff that came out. But now you got, uh, Billy Joel, you got, um, uh, the B-52s, you got Blondie, you got this. So now they're saying, you know what, Ralph, at the end of the second hour, can you do like a new wave set? So now I start seeing that that's, that's changing. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do? You know, I, I couldn't, I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm still on the radio. So I would have to mix that kind of stuff into it. And then at, at the end, to the point where disco became a dirty word, they didn't even use it anymore. The word disco is so now here I am, the poster boy for Disco, the Guido from Brooklyn. I'm the Antichrist. All the people. Supreme cuisine. Exactly. I'm the one, like all the disco came from, from gay roots. Disco was first celebrated and was a lifestyle in the gay community. Here I am. A testosterone-filled Brooklyn kid with a freaking hair and, 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 and collars and all of this, 
there you go, just like that. And they are like, who is this guy? 2001 what? Disc, get out of here. And that's how it was. And it, I mean, it got to the point, it was bad where I would normally go and get records from record companies. Uh, I mean, some people were nice about it, but I just felt that it was changing. And, and I got, I kind of got mad in a way, but I also was a little bit relieved because it, it was just too much. Now I discount, 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 discount. And now it's like, it's not cool to be a DJ at Odyssey anymore. It's not cool to, um, uh, walk into, into Macy's. There was a disco section. Really? That's how bad it got. So the disco backlash was definitely a, a slap to the face. So by this time, uh, the end of 1980, um, 2001 Odyssey, after the um, tourists got there, they got an idea, and it worked, too. They decided to do an all-male review, male strippers. It was never done anywhere before. It was the, I, I'm telling you, it was the first place they ever do it. Like a chip in the space of the chip. chip. Yes, exactly. And. First time ever? First time. It was, because some, some guy came in with the idea. He obviously was a piece of it, but they had all these crazy women there. And by that time... I'm going to be a backup guy to play music for males. Um, that was just so disgusting with everything. But what, it end, what ended up happening and ended up saving me was all these other clubs started to open. And then once the clubs opened, um, I started uh, not going to Odyssey no more. The, the, what do you call it? Ronnie took the job over. And then I would go to clubs. I would go see Danny Pucciarelli. I would see Pucciarelli at, um, at uh, Park Villa. I would go see Gary Backler at uh, Cadabras, uh, John Donato here, this one here, and House. Yes, now, now we're out of the new wave thing, but now different music starts coming, and it's all that early R and B down tempo music, uh, unlimited touch, and uh, what mom used to say, Junior, and all that stuff. So it's actually disco, but they just took the word out. You know, it's dance music. So I got my first job pre uh, post Odyssey in um, this club called Hadar Two, which was the Island. There you go, the elegant Hadar Two. Staten Island, New York. <laughs> yes, Staten Island. And by now, if you look, if you look at my pictures back from like two years ago, my hair was was puffier and longer. And uh, the clothes changed now that collars were shorter. And, and uh, we went from polyester pants to capizios. It was, it was stuff like, yeah, you could see the difference. So it was like a new thing. So we had like kind of new wave clothes, but the music was different. So now, again, what saved me was because I was a DJ of Odyssey. And, and, and back then, those good people that we know ran those clubs they always ran a club somewhere. So if there was a club here that did it, they opened up somewhere else. It was somewhere else, somewhere else. So what was happening was there was big money in the clubs. All those people knew that. It was liquor to sell. There was ways to there. So that's what happened. And going to Hadar too. And I worked there. And um, that's when I met Tommy Musto. It's the first time. Uh, I have in that picture uh, <laughs> with the, the elegant Hadar too, there's a little speaker in the back. And it was a car speaker from my 1980s. 
1975 Cadillac. Yeah, that that speaker. That keeper that speaker right behind him. Yeah, yeah. That speak that was actually a car speaker. A car a car speaker. And what was happening was Tommy Musto had come to Hadar and he um I was playing beat the clock. And he goes, yeah, you, you know what? You know my father. My father knows your father. Da, 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 da. They had a TV store and all this stuff. So Tommy goes, so I, I, I'm putting the monitor on his own. So Tommy goes, you want me to fix that for you? I'm like, that's yeah. Tommy right there, everybody. Yeah, Tommy, I love you. And Johnny D on the side. That's the That's it. So uh, I says, yeah, that would be cool. And he says, I'll tell you what, give me that 12 inch of beat the clock. <laughs> it was a promo, beat the clock. Meanwhile, I had two of them. I was like, I it. And that's how I met Tommy. So, anyway, through Hadars and all of that. Now, um, I'm was starting Tommy, to. Was Tommy Richard, Tommy grew up in McDonald Avenue, right? Or something yeah, like he, that. He, I grew up in Avenue. Actually, grew up in Avenue. Okay, Avenue. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, we became friends. And then, um, uh, let me see, I went from Hadar to. Then I went to Blossoms, which was an, uh, another club in Staten Island. It was underneath that hotel. Years go on. Yeah, yeah this is the early eighties. And then, um, then I went to Scarlet's. And through those years, I was able to reinvent myself and survive as a DJ because now I was strictly at the places I was because of how I played and where I played. So now my talents as a DJ came up because. You still got to know what you're doing. If you don't know what you're doing, after it doesn't, it's going to make a difference. So, and plus, I knew people that had like kind of a following, so it was okay. But I still had no direction in my head. I, I was just a DJ. I was still, believe it or not, still living at home. I was in my early twenties. I was living at home with my parents, and um, things were okay. But I wasn't making tons of money. It was just I was surviving. And it wasn't until um, right around 82 when all of a sudden Planet Rock comes out. That label. And uh, yeah, that's what it led to. So Planet Rock comes out. It's the biggest thing now. The music totally changes from R&B to this electro drum machine uh, type music. So now I'm... Like, this is freaking great. So meanwhile, Tommy had a partner, Tommy uh, Tommy Musto and Sozi, that they were partners. Tommy Tommy Sozi used to make money from doing things we won't mention. Uh, rest in peace. They, were able, they were able to obtain the first day of drum machine. They had uh, the, the techniques uh, RS1605, which I have inside, which is that big... Uh, $8,000 real to real now with two track, four track. And um, they started doing edits. And their edits got introduced to KTU after I left. So it was another era in KTU. And um, I was really, you know, really into doing this. And I'm saying to myself, wow, this remix thing is really, really cool. So I started seeing them and hanging out with them and seeing what they were doing. I was like, wow, this is really cool. I would really love to be like a remix type of person. But again, no mentor, no nothing. Um, what am I going to do? So I remember one day just get, getting records from the pool, going to them, listening to them. And I get this record 
It was called Funky Space Play. It was some small little labels in, in the Bronx or something. And I'm listening to it. And I was listening. I was saying, you know what? This thing could be so much better. There's no intro. They added 16 bars at the beginning and then put a break in it, made something you could mix out of. It could be something. So I look and I seen it was a phone number on the label. I call. Got an answer machine. Ah, my name is Ralph. Not mention Odyssey, none of that. Uh, I get the record from the pause and it's really, really good. I mean, I think it could be better if you could do this. Da, 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 boom. Maybe about a day or two later, I get a call back from the woman who was running the label. She invites me down. They booked a studio on 36th Street, whatever. I mean, I, now, I've never, ever been in a recording studio before. But they don't know that. <laughs> it's a typical story. <laughs> so I walk into the studio. Now, back then, you weren't allowed to touch anything. This is in 1983. Three. So there was an engineer that was there. So all I did was just to tell the engineer what I want. Okay, I want these first 16 bars to be drums, then add a hi-hat, then do this, edit. Then they would go into the, into the first chorus, boom, and that's how it was done. So they re-released my mix. I didn't pay for it, but they re-released it, and they put it out on a, on that label. And there was, um, if you went to oh, records, was like Rock and Soul and all that stuff, they would have these, these um, like flyers it was a rock and soul, the best-selling records, this, that, that, that. And these, then they put, uh, a, what do you call it, an advertisement there. Funky, play spay, uh, funky Space Player, such and such. Ralphie D. Remix. Well, I was like, this is freaking great. I was like, wow, this is so great. The record came out in the pool. Now, you remember, I was in IDRC. By that time, I told you the cuisine stuff, everything became like Latin, Latinized, which there's nothing wrong with that. The Italian thing, I didn't think they felt all the time when the Italian stuff was happening. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, it turned out. It's yeah, now it's, yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, uh, I changed pools because it was just becoming, I'm the Guido and Eddie's people don't like me as it is. I leave, I go to a, a small pool in Brooklyn and it comes out. <laughs> And then um, I kind of like got the idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in a studio and stuff. And, and this was jelly bean time. Now, jelly bean time is like no other time because here was this guy who I, I had known about, but he was now walking on sunshine. All these records are coming out. His name is on it. And He's like, he's playing at Xenon. He's playing at all these places. And I was like, wow, I'd love, love to do that. Now I, I think I, if I become a DJ in these places and I do it, but meanwhile, you think you're going to walk in anywhere and start doing that? I don't care how many 2001 Odysseys you worked. It ain't going to happen. And it was, you know, I, was, I tried, but uh, it just didn't happen. So anyway, Jelly Bean is doing his thing, and that's inspiring the hell out of me to do that. Must have told me, we're now on KTU, and they're doing their thing. So now, the next big break comes, Tommy Boy Records. Let's go to that. Dance Me, there we go. Dance Music Report comes out, and the, this is this is the, the actual... Um, the second thing, but it leads up to really quick. They had a, they had a, they had a contest. The, the song Play That Beat, they wanted people to remix it. So I entered it, and I did this mix, and I took, like, uh, crowd noises and stuff and edited it together. I had my first reel-to-reel, and it came in second place. And then the, the winners were Double D and Steinsky, and they were the ones who did that version of James Brown in it. Now we come to the payoff. <laughs> dum, dum, dum. And I came in second place, and 
I mean, my, my name was in there. It was really nice. Hey, and, ooh, someone that never really did it? Right. I, I did it on my own. So it, it gave me like, well, okay, I, I got now it. The boost of encouragement again. There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, this is now, if anybody who's following this, life hey, goes like this. Pay attention now, everybody. Sometimes, the, again, these are things that nobody knows, the next part that happens. So what happens is now, um, the, in 83, I went from playing in clubs in Staten Island to this place called The Rooftop in the City. The Rooftop was two blocks from the front house. And I got the job through whatever. The and commission, was, basically. The commission yeah. said go yeah. there. It was 10 o'clock at night till 10 in the morning. All you could drink, all you could drink, private club. So in Jersey, clubs close at two. That's where their crowd was from Jersey. So here I am playing at this place from 10 in the morning, 10 at night till 10 in the freaking morning. And um, that was set. You played. Oh, yeah. Like it was nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I, you know what? You know, that's right. A lot of people don't realize that. What's the total? Ten hours. Ten hours straight. Ten hours. Ten hours. So, we, yeah, we, as DJs when we were younger, we were seasoned. Right. We would always do. We were doing ten to four every night. Thank and then you. go to after hours sometimes and do that. Right. And then move on to next club. Right. I mean, we had help with with substances and things like that, if you really want to know. But, I mean, I, thank God. You know what? I'm lucky. I, I didn't want to say that. I just wanted to make clear and keep it a clean show. Yeah, clean, but I'm lucky that I never became an alcoholic or a drug addict. Oh, it's shit. very easy when you got that stuff and it's there. And I got people that I know that are doing this and I'm not even paying for it. And I'm getting all of this stuff. But anyway, thank God. But that, that's another story. Maybe I'll... Um, well, can you play that drink for me? <laughs> Here, take this thing. Here, take this. This is for you. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Um, here, Ralph. Here you, there go. you go. Here, take this. Yeah. Seven and seven for you, Ralphie. There you go. So, I'm in Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, you, you got to tell it the right way. So I know they would take the money and they go like this to you and they go, take care of that for me. Yeah. Put that for you. And he says, sure. Oh, man. It's a tip. It was tips. I would have like a box that would have a bunch of stuff in there, pills, this and that. We got that. I mean, I wasn't a pill guy, but just, yeah, you never know. Anyway, I'm in this place, the rooftop. The rooftop is a couple of blocks from Brooklyn. Now the fun house. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, time, I know this is the definitely around the fun house because he's wearing Jordash. Yeah, 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 yeah. This came, this came, this is the year after. This is the year after. This is the time I can tell from the picture because I had the same pants. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll mention this picture. That's a, a very big thing, too. That's another life-changing thing. Man, it's, I never told people these stories, so it's it's weird. Every time you think your story, everybody's soaking it in, taking it in. Come on. So I'm in the rooftop, and uh, I'm playing there, and I would get this magazine dance music report. I mean, we'd get yeah. it cool. Yeah. Next thing I know, I open that up, and again, it said, now it's Tommy Boy has a new contest. It's the play that uh, it's the uh, I forget what the big beat bust out blah 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 and this time they wanted you to take all they wanted you to take all the the Tommy Boy hits and mix them like make a medley out of them and you know put it in before you go any further there was another company called everyone DiscoNet yes. 
service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason why Tommy Boy saw this was because there was DJs doing these mixes. Yeah, just going out, yeah. Right. And they were they had service these you would pay a membership fee and you get these records. And mm-hmm. these guys were playing a bits and pieces of all the years' records. Yeah. So Tommy Boy had the idea. Yeah, Tom Silverman, who was actually before his time, he was he, he was he was a good person to, uh, to to think things through. So um I got I got this thing and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. But by this time, I said to myself, wait a minute. Musto and Sozi are on the radio. They got digital delays, they got an anyway drum machine. How am I going to be able to put a mix together with my real career with just edits? Because I know they were going to enter the contest. Of course, everybody knew it. An inspiring DJ. Thousands of, I don't know, thousands, but all these DJs entered the contest. So I said to myself, got an idea. So I approached Tommy and Tommy says, look, they knew about it and everything. He says, how about this? I came in second second place the first time. Let's all do the mix together. And they agreed. So we went and we started to construct with digital delays and edits and everything, and we did this mix. And it won. We won first place. And and I don't know if the pictures are still, if you got that's what it is. That's the promo of it. We were called 3D. Tommy, uh, I think Monica gave us that name or whatever. But um, the uh, promo 12-inch came out, serviced all the pools. And that was one of the, 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 the actual album, Tommy Boy's Greatest Beats, was one of the first CDs that came out. So uh, this was like a big thing. I mean, now I'm on, to me, Tommy was a major label. I'm like, right, this is fucking great. Oh, my God. Now I'm starting to realize my vision of what I want to do. This is it. Um, I got the masters of all the, to play, the Aurora's Planet Rock, Cheap Drills, uh, Look for the Perfect Beat, all of it. We have the masters, and we're taking pieces out. We were using what was called a synclavier at the time. Never, it was the first, it was like before samplers. Uh, we were taking all the pieces and all that, so we constructed it and did all these things. And First, we actually did, did, did the medley with the records, and when the records won, then they made us go to Tommy Boy Studios, and that's when we started to take all the parts out of the songs and did, we, you know, we made like a bed, used, uh, I can't remember, the planet rock in the background, and then we put samples on top of it and all that, and it worked out great. Now, just something just close to show you that life changes. And what I'm about to say, it, it, it's, it's not meant to, to uh, degrade somebody, but it's such a bad turning point in my life, and I never forgot it. And, and, and one of the people that's, that gets involved, which is not alive yet, and this is no means involved. It's it just the way he was and just the way it happened. And it was really, excuse me, fucked up. Okay, so the reenactment, give us the reenactment. Really okay? Here we go, everybody. We're done. We're done, all right? Now we got to go and present the mix. We all go to Tommy Boy's office uptown, sit down, uh, Tom Silverman, Joey Garner, this one, all of us. And they play it back. We'll listen. All right. Oh, no, okay. Stops it. Tom Silverman gets up and goes, guys, Nice job. I really like what you did here. I like this. And I like that. But you see the part here 
this part here, 16 bars. You got to shorten that. So I'm, my mind, listen, it's the boy. You're telling me we got to shorten it, we got to shorten it. All of a sudden, I hear, what are you talking about, shorten? I hear it again. What are you talking about, shorten? No, it sounds good the way it is. Why are you going to shorten it for? Oh, God. Look at my eyes. <laughs> I'm like, <sighs> you're going, holy shit, you idiot. Shut up. You're saying yourself. Now, I'm not the only one. I'm not going to speak for the second person that was there. But there must have been an argument in that car. I was white as a ghost. And isn't it now there's something else they wanted to shorten. And again, he opens up his mouth. There was a wine bottle that they were drinking wine. I was going to take this one, I swear to God, and crack his head open. But with all of this stuff going through me, I, I, my mind was numb. We left that day. I don't even want to tell you what my thoughts were. They weren't good. It was a turning point in my life. With this close, a hair, three edits away from them using us as their editors, as their mixers. Guys, they're in-house guys now. They're in-house guys. And you know what ends up happening? I don't hear from them. Right. The record was supposed to come out. We were supposed to do this press thing. supposed to do all this. No press thing. The record comes out. It was supposed to be mixed by 3D. The dynamic duo, Tommy Musto, Tommy Sozzi, and, Ra and Ralph. That well, They put Ralph D'Agostino. My name was supposed to be first because I won, which it didn't really matter. They switched the names. And it was the last time. We heard from them. And it was, it had to be one of the worst things in my, here, right, we're right there. We're right there, right there. After all the shit I've been through in my life, all the stuff and everything, and I finally figure out what I want to do, and I'm right there, through no fault of my own, bang, that fucking happens. My relationship with the person who said that, which I'm not even going to mention his name, listen, I understand it happened, but with one swoop of your fucking big mouth, ruined it. Ruined it. So now reinvention again. So now 1984, I start working at this place promotions, which is the biggest club in Brooklyn. The biggest, huge freaking place. That was that thing with me. I'm standing there with the, the dungarees over there. Yeah, promotions, right. This club. Yeah. So now, yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm still trying to comprehend what I was so that they let the air out of my balloon to a freaking point. Now I'm just going through the freaking motions. And you got to remember, I told you I've been depressed all my life. Can you imagine what I feel and what I'm going through then? I may have a smile on my face in these pictures, but inside of it, I was dying. I was freaking dying. I didn't know what to do. Again, no mentor. Nobody to tell me, Ralph, listen, take it easy. Do this, do that, do that. I just didn't have it. So all of 1984 passes. Uh, let me see. All of 1984 passes. And now um, the people who ran this place promotions, um, unfortunately, something very bad happened. Um, certain people ran 
you you couldn't have a club in Brooklyn unless you you knew the right people. So everything was going great until one day some fucking jerk off decides to shoot somebody in the fucking head right in front of the fucking place in front of 500 people. 500 people were standing there and this guy walks up to somebody and shoots him in the fucking head. What? Whacked him right in front of everybody? Huh? In front of, in front of the, it had to be about 3 o'clock in the morning. People were still in the club. This is right in front of the club. Oh, yeah. Over a girl, some kind of stupid oh, shit. It wasn't a mob hit. It was a girl. No, it wasn't a mob. No, no, no. It was over a girl. That becomes another. I go from working in the biggest club in Brooklyn to largest club in Brooklyn. We got every act. I still have the reel to reels of the acts. Walita Holloway says my just stuff that's really good, but it, it, it all went to nothing. So the club opened up. Memorial Day weekend, 1984, and closed Labor Day weekend, 1984. Only ran two months, but it was the biggest club in Brooklyn. They were parking cars in the schoolyards. Yeah, everything was was okay until that happened. Now, that was it. Now, my records are locked in this club. Labor Day weekend, I'm playing. Cops come in, the state liquor authority. Boom. They arrest everybody. They arrest everybody. I walked out as a patron. I ran out of the boots and they thought I was just a patron. They locked everybody. They locked the bartenders up. My records were locked in that club. How long? For six months. Oh, six God. months. Now I got no records. I can't play no way. That's when um, Danny Cole, rest in peace. Danny Cole and I go back for years and years and years and years to 79, 78. Like he worked at Jay's too. And he was working at Plaza Suite. Now, Plaza Suite was another club that was a, a staple in Brooklyn. It was right around the corner from where I live. And they said, ah, come hang out, come play. So that's what I did. And um, I went to go and hang out with Danny. And um, I, you know, I didn't have my records, but. I, we made the, the months went by, and then in between that, I went and did a couple of guest spots. Uh, Rusty Yarn and Rust, rest in peace, great guy. I feel so bad, passed away. Uh, he was working at a club, Key Largo, and sent in Long Island. He got me the job there, and then he played at uh, Ann Vines and all these places. So I would borrow records, play, play. But in, in the, I am a basket case, nervous wise, but I'm just trying to make the time pass. Of course, now I my my dream of what I wanted to do was, was stamped on to the freaking point that I, I, there's nothing I could do about it. And then after, um, after uh, promotions and after uh, hanging around with Danny, the same guys who ran promotions opened up another club on the other end of Brooklyn called Club B. Now, Club B used to be a club called Fantasy Island, which in the early 80s was a bit, it was, it was great. It had a really good sound system in it. And they hired me to open the club up like all the other clubs that they hired me to open. I wouldn't stay. Sometimes I wouldn't stay the whole time. I would only open up and say whatever. But it was all done under supervision. Believe me, if I if I was told to stay somewhere and I got paid for it, it, it was okay. Thank God I, I never screwed anybody around. I was never a big son. I never dropped anybody's name. I wouldn't have, have a big mountain up like that. So I, I start work at Club B. And... Um, we would, we would do these showcases and have these groups come, Divine and uh, D-Train and all of that stuff. And um, to 
Tommy Mustel comes into the picture. She starts hanging out again. We're rolling there. And there's this, this, uh, this girl, her name was Nikki. And she was a singer. She was a background singer for Alicia. Now, Alicia, we knew Alicia would come to the club disguise sometimes and hang out and stuff. So it was like a, a little small little thing going on. So, um, Tommy, by this time, Tommy had started to work at Northcott, which later became fourth floor and new groove and all of that stuff. So he was like, kind of, yeah, there you go. And that came later. So they started to do, um, he started to do engineering and stuff like that. So Tommy heard, we all heard Nikki. She was the best. She was Mark Berry was the producer. Mark Berry was doing Alicia and, and Nikki, he would always hire Nikki to do backgrounds. And Tommy just thought, you know, it'd be great. We can get Nikki. Was Tommy's thing? Wanted to get Nikki to, to be a regular artist, and um, they pursued that. And was the song they started working on to stay, and everything was working out. Boom! So here's another turning point. <laughs> can't make this shit up. You can't make it up. So now, in order to go into his recording studio by this time, we had money for studio time. Sure. So I'm talking to it with the people who are behind the club that I'm working in. And I say, uh, how much you need? I think it was about 5,000, 7,000, whatever it was. He said, I'll tell you what. Come here tomorrow. You, you got the money. The money's yours. Obviously, there are strings attached to that, which we're not going to get into. But this was a big job. I was like, wow, okay. We just do what we have to do. Tommy, I think Tommy wrote the song. <clears throat> she wrote the song. It was right around the time, like, uh, the, the freestyle thing was was out. Like, um, uh, you know, Alicia, the baby talk and all that stuff. 84, 85. And what happens is um, something happened to the point where I think Mark Berry got kind of pissed off that we were using Nikki as an artist. I believe something to that point. So long story short, we had to can everything. Now you think, okay, can you just do it? What happens is now I got to go to these people who gave me the money and say, I just don't need it. Really? Well, let me give you the G version here. Hold on. <laughs> the G. Uh, put it this way. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. Uh, what do you mean you don't I, need it? I got sent for. I don't know if you people know what that is. When you get sent for, somebody calls you and says, listen, you need to come here. This needs to be discussed. And then there are a bunch of people that are there and they decide the fate of what the situation is. And um it's like a good fellas, everybody. If you watch the movie, it, it, it was it was they call, they made a slap the in the, it was a slap in the face to them. Here I am, like here, here they are. I'm working for them. And we're offering you money, you take, and then all of a sudden you don't slap the face. It's just, just, it's not right. It's not um, code. It's not right. So what ended up happening was nothing happened. I mean, I didn't get killed, obviously. But what happened to me was you're not working no more. You're done. So my job at Club B, which was a four-night-a-week job, finished. So now what do I do? In comes Tommy Nappy, who I haven't seen in a long time. Tommy, if you're watching, <laughs> I start hanging out now with Tommy Nappy, who he's 
one of the biggest DJs in Long Island. He's got 231. He's got Speaks. He's got Rumors. He's got uh, all these places. All these places. That one club hotter than the other. He's working seven nights a week. He's getting married. So what does he do? Ralph, do me a favor. Take over all my gigs for two weeks. Of course, no problem. Here I am. Now I go to 231. That's where I met Steve Thompson. Steve Thompson actually worked 231. Uh, Speaks, all these clubs, Channel 80, everything was great. So now... Without working in, in Club B, I'm, I'm making money working in, in all of these clubs. And after a while, uh, probably about six months later, I kind of reconcile with the people with the money thing. Of course, they, I had to explain to them why I did it. It wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It was no fault of mine. I, had, I didn't have the resources. Like the girl wouldn't want to, can't do it. What am I going to do? You don't know the music business. I'm going to go get some girl off the street to sing. It's not like that. And they kind of got it. And we let bygones be bygones. And that was it. And then I, I went to work at this place called 21 Hudson in Manhattan for the same people. And that's when Junior Vasquez came on the scene. And it's funny how people connected. After I left, it became Baseline. And Junior Vasquez was a DJ. And Baseline became a big, big, big thing. And, and that's how that went. Now, Here's, here's how I, I think I get to redeem myself in some way. Uh, Tommy Musto is working for Northcott. Then comes New Groove. So New Groove and Fourth Floor are in the same loft. And in that loft was, was a, uh, a place called Chico Productions. And Chico was from Italy. He was an importer. Hey, there you go. He was an importer, exporter, and he sold um, imports. To, to record stores and, and people will come there and buy stuff out of there. So um, I said, Tommy actually went through, it was like the, the way to go was you start working for Chico first and then you go into working for like New Groove or working for whatever as a bus boy or whatever and an engineer cleans the same thing. Like sort of like what Victor Simonelli went through with, with, um, with, um, with but not as intense as that. So I'm working for Chico, and I was saying, "He's not a Ralphie. We got these records. I licensed it, Gaucho. But you want to do a, a, a remix version? It was really a re-edit. I just edited it differently, and then I did B Blase. Yeah, like four or five records. So now I started to get a little bit into. Now I got records coming out, and this is right when the uh, Hot 103 was out, uh, which was like the, the KTO of the time. Now it's uh, uh, Hot 103, and. Tommy was doing all those freestyle artists and all of that stuff was going on at the time. And then uh, um, you're looking at, yeah, 87, 86, 87, yeah, 80, 87, like that, 86, 87. And then um, um, Tommy becomes partners with Silvio, rest in peace, Silvio, great guy. And we get in good with Frank from New Groove. And now New Groove is starting to put records out, the Burrell Brothers and all that. And that's what I meet Kenny Dope. Kenny Dope is um, is doing stuff for New Groove, right? And um, Joey Beltram. First time we meet Joey Beltram, he's doing stuff for New Groove. So now um, it's the late eight, late eighties, like that. And now a turning point happens from nineteen eighty three until nineteen eighty eight. I kind of realized on my own that if I wanted to get into the music business and remix records and do that, you had to become what was called a billboard reporter. 
A Billboard reporter, the old times, any old timers watch, they know exactly what I mean. Billboard reporter is the biggest trade magazine there is. If you report your records, report people's records to Billboard, it's a big thing. So now you have leverage to, you know what, you got this record coming up. Let me do a mix. And, uh, you know, it was doable. And that's it. So that never happened. I've been trying to do that for years up until, because you had to be in the right club and the right person had to be. At that position of the billboard dance rep- of the the head of billboard. So by this time, I had uh, Pucciarelli comes into the picture, and Pucciarelli was running for the record, and I got in for the record. Now for the record, Frankie Knuckles, Jelly Bean, uh, David Morales. You're talking any DJ who any DJ is in that pool. So I'm going now. Pucciarelli ran the pool, and Judy Weinstein. You, you know, kind of ran everything, but she started, this is the time of David Morales now is starting to, he's catching on fire, Knuckles is catching on fire. I'm going to see these guys every week. So it was like, it, it was kind of cool. We we had like a, yeah, that's it. That's a glamorama actually. And we're all, you know, David's doing his thing and everybody's like emulating to David because David's like, he's the hottest shit that's going. So um, we kind of hit it off and everything was cool and all that stuff is going on. And then I get a break. The break comes when uh, 1987, the people who I worked for at all those clubs with the money um, uh, are behind, their associates are behind a club called Pastels in Brooklyn. Now, this is a very big turning, but Pastels is the most successful club in Brooklyn Pastels opened in 1983 and ended up going 19 years with the same name. And before that, it was called Penthouse. And that's the original club where those heavy tapes that I showed you at the beginning, the, the guy who made them, that's where he worked. It was called the Penthouse. Anyway, it's funny how it all ties together. So um, there was a guy that worked at Pastels. His name was Mark Zimmer. Mark Zimmer, yeah. He was the DJ's DJ. I've heard DJs. I've heard Jim Burgess. I've heard... Uh, lots of different DJs over the years, but Mark Zimmer was one of the most technically gifted, and he would do mixes that nobody would even think of. I, I just, he was so precise. And he was, he was a musician. He knew stuff. And, and I would always go to listen to him when I wasn't playing. It's just great. And when I was doing the, uh, uh, I started doing uh, music at the time for Fourth Floor, the, the beginning the beginning stuff that I started to do, I would give it and he would play it and stuff like that. So we had a really good thing. So he was leaving Pastels. He went to go and um, become a um, caterer. Went to a catering business. Now I have the opportunity to audition for pastels. I get this job in pastels. This is the club of clubs. I mean, I'm talking money, everything. Everybody went there. Nope. Some light finally shined on me. Right. I go there, do the audition. I get the job. Now I get the job because of the people that I knew that put me in for the job. But now you had to keep the job, but you had to know what you're doing. If you didn't know what you're doing, they didn't give a shit who you know. Listen, he's great, but can't use him. He's gotta not, go. Gotta go. So now I'm in 87, 88, and now I'll never forget going up to the pool one day. Pucciarelli tells me, he says, Ralph, I got news that you're going to freak. What? They're short of Billboard Reporter. They need another one. I'm going to bring Judy 
the girl from, uh, well, I forget who it was doing the billboard thing, to pastels. We all know the place is packed. You're a shoo-in. You'll get it in a second. It's gonna finally happen. I was. I went from here, blasted to I was. Wow. All that shit, all that bad stuff that happened to me, everything was finally gonna pay off. Should I continue? You really want to know what happened? <laughs> of course, as I would have it, I'm in a club playing one night, and there were seven partners in the club. I'm going to leave out their names, and I'm playing. One of the partners comes up, guy was drunk, and he kind of said some shit to me, get this fucker's chick off, what the fuck you doing? Embarrass me. I stood my ground. Come talk to me like that. Fuck you. Da, 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 da. I remember I'm talking to one of the parties. I'm one of the seven partners. But I had backing. But I knew that I was justified because there were people that were there. Listen, you come off to me and you talk stupid to me. Yeah, I know who you are with that. But still, you don't do that in front of people. So long story short, week goes by. Everything's great. Now I find out. They're coming Saturday night. This Saturday night, they're coming. It's like a Thursday. Oh, no, the week after. I'm sorry. Week after. I, I, wow, this is going to be freaking great. The club is packed every week. There's no way, there's no way that they are going to say no or they're going to say, you know what? By the music that I'm playing, all the records from the pool, this guy's perfect. Let's use him. What do you think fucking happens? I get a call on a, on a Sunday night, and it's from the owners of the club. And they said, Ralph, you got to come down on Monday. Now, when they tell you to come down there, there's a problem. Something's got to be discussed. There's, you know, Okay. Just me. There, there, if it was a DJ thing, they would ask the other DJ, George, or both of us to go down. But no. I come walking in this place. I'm going to sit down. And they're all at the table. And they go, uh, Ralph, uh, we got to make a change here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't know. Maybe it's the music. I don't know what it is. It's just, and this is the guy who... Oh, I'm sorry. I left that all of it. Yeah. Long story short... The guy's telling me he's, they're letting me go. This is the same guy who I, be, I didn't belittle him. I just stood my ground. And he got embarrassed by his partner. His partners embarrassed him because my guy had to come and stand up for me. Now, the thing is, even if you do this to somebody and those old, those old timers do that, the partners are going to stand with the partners. That's the way it is. There's seven partners. They're not going to have a, a, an outsider from, from a secondary thing do and, and ruin whatever they're doing. So long story short, I had no choice. And then when my guy comes to me and tells me, Ralph, listen, there's really nothing we could do. That's the way it is. Yeah, you know, whatever. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. My life is about to fucking change here. This is a life-changing fucking thing. I am I am going to be Something that that I never thought I would ever do, and the opportunity is there. You're waiting all these years, and I 
refused to believe this. Long story short, they were coming on Saturday. That was the end of it. They didn't come. Now, I keep bringing back the depression. Remember, depression. Can you imagine how I felt after that? Sure. I was. You crushed. 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 Done. Done. I was. There were days I wouldn't even come out of my house that time. I was so freaking hurt by this. I never thought that I would recover. What's if that? I was an alcoholic, I would have drank myself to death. If I was a drug addict, I would have shot dope till I died. That's how freaking bad it was. Now, all, all of all of you, can you imagine that? You listen to all this story and you, you're getting this. You go, this, 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 this. This, 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 this. How much of this can you take in your life? I'm in my 20s. How much can you take? I, I was so, so devastated. I didn't know what to do. And I, and I thought that that would have been the worst of it, but no. What's the There's more. There's more. As this is happening, my father gets sick. Oh. I had a bad heart. I told you, my father never believed in medicine, right? What happens? My father ends up in the hospital. And he dies. Remember, I didn't get along with my father at all. Never. Up, but... Right before he died, I had a talk with him. I was the only person that I would be, I would have to rub his arms because he died of congestive heart failure. He, he, he drowned, basically. Right. So he depended on me to help him go through stuff. And, and what, another bad thing, now imagine all your life, you think of somebody and you never get along with them. You always you didn't hate them, but you just like never got along. And all of a sudden you realize that now you're older and you find out that he's not the guy that he really is. He's a, he's really a, a good guy, but he just couldn't help his life. His life was in shambles. Sure. And and, and he ex there were certain things that I had explained that he explained, and and most of sure I, I I got to like him. So he was in intensive care forty two days, and then I go, you know, I, I I was looking forward to speaking to him because we were having like conversations about stuff, and then all of a sudden he fucking dies. Man, I thought that, listen, is there any, any, any directors out there that want a, want a movie? You see where this is going? It, 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 this is just, uh, this is unbelievable. This is my fucking life. Okay. Now I thought that I was fucking pissed off for losing this job here. Now I'm fucking done. I, my mind is playing tricks, tricks on me. I'm to the fucking point where I don't know if I'm coming or going. I don't know what the fuck is going on. I don't know what's going on. And then again, there was always a savior. Somebody comes in and changes it. And that savior was Lenny D. Lenny D, I don't know if people know him. Lenny D is probably one of the biggest hardcore DJs in the world. Back then, Lenny was working with Tommy. They were doing all that stuff on Fourth Floor, and Victor Simonelli was doing stuff and all that. And Lenny met Tommy because he worked at, um, at uh, um, what do you call it, uh, WKRB in, in uh, the radio station. And he introduced Lenny to me. So what had happened was Lenny said, come on. Listen, I'm, 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 he just started to go to England. Well, that's Bones and me and, and Tommy. There, there was a picture of Lenny, but I think that was one of the things that didn't come out. So anyway, um, Lenny's working with Tommy. Tommy's engineering, and Bones was there. It's Joey Beltram, yep. And we're um, uh, Lenny's like, let's let's do this this EP. Let's get these samples together. And 
This is the samples I'm referring to. You got to remember back at that in that time, the the game changer in a recording studio was the S950, which is the Kai 950. It was a eight uh, bit sample, which revolutionized freaking music. So we start doing these things. Had all these ideas, and boom! And when we did this thing, it's called outtakes on fourth floor. I think you saw it. It was the yellow thing, and it was the first record I did for New Group. And uh, Lenny. And Frankie Bones had done Looney Tunes, which Looney, yeah, Looney Tunes became freaking huge in, in, in England. Huge. So the record mirror trust, the whole thing. So now Frankie Bones and Lenny are flying over to England doing their thing. They're the first uh, house techno people after Morales to go over there and and play. And now they're getting booked here, they get booked there. All of a sudden, Lenny comes back, he says, Ralph, listen to me, man. You have to come to England. You have to come. You, I'm telling you, and I'm still kind of reeling it off of, of the, my, my father's death and all that. I'm still like, the record is out, but it's, it's just, it's, cause these records didn't do anything here. They did nothing in the United States, but in Europe, there were freaking heads of people. I'm talking about sample records that we were doing there. People were playing them. I was like, wow, okay. And he's showing me the charge DMC and all of this stuff. So, um, we um, we do outtakes, and then um, Victor Simonelli <laughs> comes to me one day and says, um, "Oh, outtakes! I was we were doing these uh, sample parts, and I was just kidding around on vocals, going, yeah, you know that, all right, and kind of stuff to kidding around.' And Victor goes, "Yo, man." You got to use your vocal in, in some of these distractions. We're doing, we're doing this thing. Me and Lenny with this thing called ease the pressure, and we're gonna, uh, you know, put it out on. I think it was fourth floor. Yeah, went out on fourth floor. My sister is doing these vocals, but you would be great to do the chorus. Ease the pressure. Your mind, your body, your soul. And he said, "That's what I do. Ease the pressure." Your mind, your body. Yes. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. So I recorded that thing, and ease the pressure became really, really big in the UK. It got licensing. Hell, um, it did really, really well. So now, Lenny, Tommy, and I think Frank here in the UK. They're going to the UK, and I said, "Some Ralph, you gotta come here. You have to come here. You have to come." So what I did was. I took the money that I saved from working. I jumped on a plane by myself, Pan Am Flight 103, I'll never forget, and flew to the UK. And, you know, I got, you know, they, ever told, they told me where to stay in the Victoria Station and all that and had everything. Yeah, that's later on, West Bam and Joey Beltram. So I get, I get to the UK. And the first thing that happens, I get into a freaking cab. Now, remember, I'm an immense Beatles fan. Immense. Spend that. Wow. I'm an immense Beatles fan. I'm, I, and I get into the cab and I tell the guy, take me to Victoria Station. And he goes, no problem. Puts the meter on. And the first song I hear is Strawberry Feels Forever by that group Candy Flip. At, at, this is the first time in my life that something felt right. I couldn't explain it. It was just, there was that thing. And I remember getting to Victoria Station, I get out of the cab and I go to walk across the street and I go like this and a freaking double-decker bus, the mirror, hits my freaking nose 
I mean, that's how fucking close it can be getting killed. Of course, again, I believe I'm right. You got to look right in England, right? You got to look to the right first. Mm-hmm. And that trip changed my entire life. Everything from that point on changed. Um, I got to see all those early raves. Uh, I got to meet uh, guys like Tim Taylor and yeah, Jeff Mills came later and all that. It changed my entire life. Oh, so then I started doing, from there, we started doing, started doing records. And that's when the next good part of my life came was um, we did this track called The Realm. It was a, um, it was a kind of a takeoff on Ease the Pressure, but we had a girl do the vocals and we arrested. That was one of the biggest house techno tracks in the world. That this record was freaking huge all over the world. And now I started to feel what it was like to, to finally have good things happen. And because of this track, I started getting DJ gigs all over Holland. Germany, and then come. Look at that. And, and the realm, the realm was freaking huge. That 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 was a, that was definitely a life changer for me. Yeah, they had like the covers of magazines, and my whole life, everything I worked for, all the the lows and the the craziness and the depression was still there. Even at this point, now I'm on the world stage. I got smiles, all smiles on my face, right? I was a depressed person. What was happening to me, the depression came out when I was getting on planes. I had this separation anxiety and I got married and, and I would have to take these, 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 uh, what do you call it? I would have to take freaking sedatives, sedatives to get on a plane. That's, that, that's, that's something that's later on. You got to show that, that, that <laughs> Cox, nobody knew Carl Cox was dead back then in 1997. My God, that's the, uh, what do you call it? Went to music conference later on. Right. It was, it was just, um, you know, things were starting to happen and then I started playing all over the place. And then, um, um, uh, the biggest rave on the planet was energy. 1994. I headlined that. And that was, that got there. Now I'm getting booked all, all over Europe. I mean, um, every weekend I'm um, somewhere and the money started rolling and, and the records and I'm doing all this. And, and I was like, really cool. Everything was cool. And then I remember doing a record for next plateau. I was doing records. Yeah, that was, uh, for UDG days. I did a, a record for next plateau. Sample records. It was a little thing. I had to say that we would give a record to easy street and give records to strictly and give a record. Yep. That comes later. I remember and I start doing these records, and and um, Eddie O'Loughlin, who I cannot, I cannot thank, and I mean, he was the mentor that I was looking for all my life. He became Eddie O'Loughlin was probably one of the nicest, most gracious people in the music business. You to anybody that knows Eddie O'Loughlin, they'll all say the same thing. He was the nicest of the nicest guys, and he said, what he did for me, he showed me the ropes and what happened was um back then there were uh like winter music conference and stuff like that there was a thing called Midem. it was in the south of france it's where the cosmic music festival is right yeah they would they would have it and eddie would go so so eddie says you know what ralph what about doing rex freddie do records for me i want you to do a and r for me the next black though, there was no shabby label. They had some good stuff on there. So I took it. It gave me a job. 
doing a and during the week. And then I was putting compilations together. I was doing mixes. I was doing this. The mixes I was funneling and giving them, doing them in, in, uh, at uh, fourth floor. So, they, you know, that kept the money in the family. Everybody made money and it was great. So um, then uh, I, I remember going to, uh, to meet them and I heard this track. I was like, where the hell did this thing come from? You know, these sample records with disco stuff, and this is before. This is 1994. I never heard anything like this before. It was a disco record. It, it was freaking great. I brought it home to him. I was like, I listen to this. He's like, wow, this is really, really cool. So he licenses it, puts it out, tries to get it on New York radio. New York radio wouldn't do it, but the stations in California and the West Coast were playing the living shit out of it. And here's how shit happens. I hear this. Uh, they got this movie, Four Weddings and a Funeral, is coming out. It was a freaking huge movie. Yeah. The executive is driving in a limousine in, in Los Angeles. He's listening to one of the stations out there, and hears this song. And he goes, wow, this is, who is this? What is this? We got to put this in a movie. He says, well, actually, at that time, Next Plateau was, uh, was distributed by Polygram. At that time, Salt Pepper and Vogue and all that stuff. Long story short, but if you've got some great news for you, man, this song's going to be in a movie again. I got a nice bonus. It's great. But what ended up happening was the movie was in the can already, and the, 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 the audio, and the, they, they couldn't change it. So what ended up happening was they ended up putting it in the movie. You know when they put it? When they roll in the credits. But still. But still. I was like, wow. So I mean, you, get, you get that, and you look, and it's on there, four weddings and a funeral, and the whole thing. So that was like a really, really good thing. And then comes Martha. Now, Victor Simonelli and Lenny, we're working on these sample records. And all of a sudden, we write, um, a, a, Victor and, a Victor and Victor's sister, I think they wrote, uh, going to get everything together, which is, the, the, that's the Martha Gilliam version. Anyway, I'm sorry, not Martha Gilliam, we're about a Gilliam. So now, Victor's working at Shakedown. And he and, and Martha is in there doing a track for I don't remember who it was. So he asked Martha, he said on, on the downtown, said, you know, would you sing this and I'll pay for it? She goes, Yeah, no problem. They had a really good relationship. So she goes in and does this get your thing together thing, which was based on a sample record where we took the chorus and wrote verses around it. Right. I bring this thing to Eddie O'Locker and he freaks. Oh my god, this this is freaking we, we gotta we gotta put this out right now. It's I mean, great. Right, right. So what happens? This is when me, Victor, and Lenny go into the studio. This is at the height of Death Mix when when Frankie and, and David and all of them are working in quad. We're using Eric Cupper and John Popo. And we go into the studio and do this thing. And we are like excited to ship because now this is gonna be the meal ticket that's gonna change it all. And what do you think happens? Here we go again. We're up here now, right? Everything's great, great, great. Then we go to put it out. Eddie puts gives the test pressings to uh, Timmy Regisford. Um, who else was it? I can't remember the, the, the DJs. All the mix shows are going nuts to play. They're, they're, can't wait for this thing to come out. What happens, Martha, who had problems. If you remember back then, CNC Music Factory, she sued them. Black Box, she sued them. She heard this. She's like, no, 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 no. This is not coming out. So she gave us a cease and desist. <laughs> And that was the end of that. So now we're not going to just sit back and not do anything. So Victor finds Roberta Gilliam and we get Roberta to re-sing it. Now, nothing against Roberta, but you want to take Malta's voice and her voice and what, what the mix shows heard and we gave them this and they weren't expecting and it wasn't 
as good or whatever, which is a different type of thing. And the record just came out, did like a minimum amount or whatever. But what happened was Frankie Knuckles ends up meeting Roberta and does the album with Roberta and they start using her and all that. So it all ended up, you know, getting to the point where it, it, it something came up and, and it just, uh, it just worked. Everything was great. And now if you think that we're actually coming to the end of what this is, cause we're in 1994. But if you think that you're over with stories that do this and end up like this, I think about it. It gives me, ugh, gives me chills. Now, is there anything you want to ask me in between this before I go into this? Because I'm going to try to condense it really quick. Okay. No, no. You've you okay. been real clear on everything. It's wonderful. 1997 comes around. Okay. Uh, I'm at the next plateau. That's done. Uh, I'm still doing, uh, still playing all over Europe and stuff. I got myself into Bangkok and into Hong Kong and all I'm doing the, the, uh, the, uh, Pacific Rim stuff. And, um, 1997, December is the 20 year anniversary for Saturday Night Fever. Now, this, one of the biggest movies in the 70s is going to be big. Now, I already know it's going to be big. It's not going to be a surprise to me. We already know. So maybe like two months before that or whatever, the radio station starts doing this. KTU asked me to do a mix for them. I do the mix. Um, interview. I do the interview. All this stuff. Vito Bruno, uh, who, who actually was the owner of the floor. All of this stuff is happening. And here's the plan. 2001 Odyssey by then was sold to uh, another set of people. And the club became Spectrum. And Spectrum was a gay club, which was great. They still kept the floor. Everything was still there. So here was wow. the thing. Famous floor. The floor. So Vito, Vito Bruno is the promoter. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a 20-year anniversary Saturday Night Fever. We're going to do it outside. We're going to have the Bee Gees, the Bee Gees play outside on the street at a big stage. I forget all the acts. They had like 20 acts. It was... Uh, it was like a, one of the biggest things to ever happen. It's going to be freaking huge. Huge. Like, great. Getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. And that weekend, on a Friday, I get booked to play in Chicago. Eh, I jump on a plane. Was it an hour and a half? An hour, get there, play, come back. My plan was play in Chicago, come back. And the Saturday night, do the thing. Of course, now here I am. I'm the original DJ from the club. And 20 years later, I'm coming back to play in the original place where all this shit started, the beginning of everything. I go to Chicago, I play everything, I call my wife to tell me what's going on. She says, man, you know what? The weather's really bad here. I'm like, what's the matter? She said, it's going to be a hurricane tonight. Jesus, Lord says, yeah, it'll clear up. What happens is one of the worst storms in, <laughs> one of the worst storms in New York history. Trees are down, this, all this stuff is that. So now I, I'm not realizing how bad it is. So I finished my, uh, I do the gig uh, in, in Chicago. And the next morning, I got like a nine o'clock flight. I'm going to be home by 1030. I mean, this is like freaking perfect. It'll be perfect. It's great, great, right? There you go. <laughs> I go to the airport. Delayed. What's that? Oh, there's a the storm in New York. How long is it delayed for? Ah, maybe an hour. Six and a half hours later, I'm in the same freaking airport. Now it's getting late. It's like five o'clock. 
And I'm like, you're not going to make it. I'm not going to fucking make this. No fucking way. Now I'm nervous again, panicky again, depressed again. Oh my God. There's nothing I could do. Finally, the plane boards. I have, right before I get on, I tell my, my wife, take my records, come to the airport and get me. We're going with the clothes I got. Of course, I was going to get you. Closing out, don't care. Right to the fucking club. Come there. Let me do what I got to do. Let me do. What happens? Wife gets me, and I see when we're landing, everything's all raining, dead. I'm just like, get out of the driver's seat. I get it. I mean, I'm going through lights, you freaking name, and I'm driving like a freaking maniac. I get to the window. The club is just streets blocked off, all of this shit. I can't get anywhere near that. I open up the trunk. Grab my records. I got my those heavy cases. Go park. Well, whatever. I mean, I'm walking, trying to get through the crowd. I get to the freaking side door and I see Vito Bruno and he's still like this. He's where the fuck were you? Like, you know, you know what am I gonna do? He they they uh, escort me into the club with a bunch of bouncers in front of me. I walk my way down. I get to the stage. I walk into the fucking booth and Joe Causey. Who's a, a radio station personality? Is here. Oh, what's up, everybody? He's ready to get the microphone, ladies and gentlemen, for the first time back in 2001, but 20 years of all this stuff. The place is packed. The DJ that played before me was supposed to be out of there, but since they didn't show up, he had to stay. So he's playing. But what happens is they close the outside because of the storm. So there's no BGs, no nothing. So the people that came, there were too many people. They couldn't let them out, so they left them all in, and the place was overly, overly, overly packed. But it was overly, overly packed for two hours. But, of course, when I get there, here's where something, there's where it all changes. I go in, the booth now, I, I the guy takes his record off. I bend down, I take the first record, put it on, put the headphones around my neck, plug my thing in, and I look out, and I see people. <laughs> Pandemonium, here we go, it'll be great. All of a sudden, like this. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Causey gets on the microphone. Out of the corner of my eye, what do I see? A fucking fireman. With a white helmet. White helmet. Making his way towards the booth. Jesus, God help you. Okay. So I got to go through the emotions of what I'm feeling now. This guy gets to the booth. Points to Joe Causey, goes like this, takes the microphone. He says, shut the music now. It was like, like I I didn't even, uh, my life now again is going to fall. It it, it is the the pressure and and just the nervousness of a moment in my life where how many moments can you have in your life that you think are going to happen and it's going to be great and something always fucking happens? And sure enough, shut the music off. Everybody out. Everybody out. I actually put my... I, I went to my knees because my records were down there and I felt the burning of tears coming to your eyes to the point where... 
when you're depressed your whole life, you feel like you got a cloud that follows you around. And if you listen to all the stuff that I explained to you, that cloud always made appearances throughout my life. And I'm just like, I, 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 I just don't get once. Give me one time once. You know, even though I had little things, but now I'm finding out, realizing that I'm I'm not even enjoying the good things. So, ended up so ended up we go to the bar and I ended up meeting Danny Terrio, who tortured Volta to dance and all of this stuff and and fever guy. It was just so terrible, so terrible. And at that that point, I had enough. What did we learn from all this? What did we learn, man? You gotta sum this up because each time it's like a, a it's a euphoria. It's like bipolar. Right, right. It's a, a bi- like a bipolar story. It's euphoric. Yeah. And, and that, goes, that was probably the, the, the last uh no, it wasn't the last thing, but anyway, at that point I knew that I needed a break. I couldn't do I couldn't I just couldn't do it anymore. The the gigs in, in Europe were starting to dry up because of the um what do you call it? The, the law, rave laws were changing and all of that. And then, you know, I tried when I was when I was making music. I came up in the house thing, but just for some reason, I, I just couldn't get the right record or whatever. And then we discovered techno by mistake. I know, when we first went to England, I'm listening to Breakbeast, the jungle. And then when I first went to Holland, I was hearing uh, a, a Belgian techno. So when I went in the studio with Lenny back then in, in the 90s, we took Belgian techno and, and uh, UK uh, breakbeats and put them together, and it created this new kind of techno, and we brought the speed up a little bit. And once you start making records in that genre, that's when you get back, you get booked in that genre. And then after a while, you know, th- that's how it all ended up. And then it got faster and faster and faster, and, and by that time, I was done anyway. So you're looking at, um, that was the only time where I stopped DJing. I stopped. I uh, ended up uh, starting a family. I ended up going to Wall Street, working on Wall Street. I fucking hated it. Oh, I couldn't stand it. I wasn't, I wasn't cut out for it. And um, uh, it's the early 2000s. And uh, then came 9-11. Now, I don't know if, it, if, it's elgi- if it's legible there. There was a picture. I actually cheated death three times. The first time, 1995, TWA Flight 800. That, that uh, was, you on the flight? Yeah. I was not, uh, I, evidently not at the time, but I was on that plane three times. The tail number, that plane. I flew that flight too. I know that flight. Chris, dead. Swiss Air Flight 101. I was on that plane 10 times. Flight, uh, well, I think the pilot committed to whatever, boom. And then the World Trade Center, that came down. I was there. I was out of there three months before. But when you realize that if I the timing was different, I would have been dead because the plane crashed underneath and I would have been there that day and that would have been it for me. Who so, were you, who you work, working for in World Trade Center? I was working for Stockton Equities, which was um, a, a Wall Street firm. And if you ever see that movie, um, Boiler Room or uh, Wolf of Wall Street, that's all the stories got nothing to do with it. But anyway, I went there, and then my son was born, and uh, I got a job, a cushy job at Prudential, and then 9/11 happened, and that kind of killed everything. And now um, I'm working at um, 
uh, at Prudential, which is a really good company. Um, once 9-11 happens, I'm done. And then out of the clear blue sky, out of my past, comes my friend who used to book me in Holland. He tells me we have this idea for a company. It's it's record bags. And the record bag, you know, you, you're carrying the metal case around, normal metal case. We have soft bags. You're going to be able to take them on the plane. There you go. UDG. Every DJ in the freaking world had a UDG bag. I have one. And yes, I still got mine. Now, what had happened was um, they their company was in Holland, but since I had left and, and I was I was running around go, going nuts at the same time that this was happening, my mother and my uncle die within six months apart, and I'm left with property and a house, and people looking to sue me. I'm in I'm in court. For nine years, not knowing where my next dollar is going to come from, and all of a sudden UDG happens, I use that as a springboard, and uh, Eddie O'Loughlin got us to make the bags, there we go, make the bags for the Winter Music Conference in 2003, and boom, it blew up. And from 2003 to 2007, I was in U- doing UDG stuff, and that's the Carl Cox picture, and Laurent Gagné, and, and Eric Murillo, and all that. They became UDG ambassadors. So they, I kind of used my... Um, my uh, the you know the music people that I knew in the background and brought them all to the forefront and, and it all worked out good. So in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, uh, the Woody Call ended. Uh, the at stock market crashed. Everything went down the freaking drain. And um, now I got now I'm getting divorced. On top of this all, because now I'm like getting sued from everywhere. And uh, the only good thing out of those years, Legends of Vinyl, Mario uh, Louis Mario, Legends of Vinyl, inducted me into Legends of Vinyl, which I thank. You know, I mean, it fits. I was back then second generation DJ, and uh, you know that kind of kept me in and everything. It was really really cool, and I was doing all these started little parties, this and that, and yeah, Jelly Bean. That's one of the parties. And um, uh, by the time uh, that's Brown, that's a great picture. That's Constantino and yeah, Frank. You know, yeah, with the music comments, yeah. And then, um, what happens is, um, uh, as I'm getting I'm under this guy, yes, that's for Legends of Battle. Now, as I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to fix my, my, uh, my marriage, they tell me, listen, your marriage is over, whatever, but the, now this is the depression is very important. My, the, the person, the doctor who was treating me says, listen, Ralph, we can't do nothing about your marriage. But if you want, let me treat you and see because you've got some real bad issues. Now, judging from what I told you of all these stories, you think I had some issues? I think so. But some of them were justified, but it doesn't matter. There's still issues. So most for short, I, I go to him for like another six, seven months. He says, Ralph, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. What I'm going to recommend is a psychiatrist. I'm going to tell you, psychiatrist, that means pills. Now, listen, I'm not, I'm not ashamed about anything. I went and I had to go get medication because I was fucking bad and it took me six months they put me on the right medication and i'll never forget one day i woke up and i was another person wow another there's a, there's a to the lining i was another person but Thank what had happened was i got really angry because i realized that all this time passed all this time passed and i lived my life under where, where I could have gotten help. I didn't know. I didn't know. And I think back about it all the time, but you know what? I've never looked back as far as what had happened in the past. It's an experience, but I take the experience and move forward with it and try to keep it 
going. So then everything just stopped. And all of a sudden, the, the, I had a settlement court. I got my house. I got my money. I got everything. And I never looked back. And since 2012, I, I, you know, I gotten back into DJ and I played at this place, Aqua Blue. And then uh, my friends at Prestige in Staten Island, shout out to Tito and, and everybody there and all the DJs, Eddie and all this, John Donato and uh, Anthony Barcia. I, um, um, we did the, the openings. Uh, uh, we, we, we took the name Pastels from the original club and we called it Pastels there. And we had the 40-year anniversary of Saturday Night Fever there. And from that point on, the club has been running great. You'll see a bunch of, of flyers from there. And um, that worked out well. And then, uh, you know, going out, you know, speaking from 17, 2019, I started my label, D-Tracks, and I started doing that, started getting back into the music. And I started, that was the point. Now I got a clear head. Clear head. Now I said to myself, okay, I did everything that you could do. I weathered the storm. I did everything that I tried to do as far as my brain could take me. But now is different. Now I have an opportunity to do what I did back then over again, but this time smarter and enjoy and have a clear head. And that makes all the difference. And that's what made me go. Yeah, Legends of Vinyl, there you go. Uh, that's everything. I started my label. Uh, 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 my publishing deal came to me. made some money on some stuff. And and it was, it, it was so great. It really started to, I really had a great, great time reinventing myself again. And then, but now here's the difference. Here's the one last little dip that happens. COVID. But this time, I don't go into a deep depression. I don't, oh my God, what am I going to do? I knew how to handle it. And I reinvented myself by doing all those, just like Lenny is doing right now. I've got to hand it to the man right there. Thank you. True house stories would have never happened if he didn't turn around and reinvent himself. Oh, true. Always, I said it during the darkest period of, yes. of mankind. A lot of things either you either sank or you swim. Exactly. And you you are swimming and floating really nice because I have the, what I, what you had, what you've heard from me. A lot of that has never been told. At first, I was like kind of embarrassed to say some things, but well, now, you, listen, you know what? If it can help somebody that's depressed, that don't live your life depressed, man. Don't. Get so help. let me ask you something, then, Ralphie. What the psychologists, of course, evaluate you, and what do they come up with? We know the story, of course, your life, and you, you work through. It. What medication they feel you needed to, to balance out? To, the first to- they gave me Zoloft. It didn't work. It, it oh, was uh, always the hardest thing in Zoloft. Yeah. I, I, again, the, the, you look at the side effects. You're like, oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, loose bowel movement. Seeing spots in front of your eyes. It just doesn't work sometimes. It just doesn't do anything. It's just, it's, it becomes more detriment. No. So yeah. how many medications did you go through to get? Actually, I was lucky. The second medication worked. Okay. Because so, a lot yeah. of times people... They do one or two it's and they go, I this, I ain't doing it. And then. Yeah. Takes a long time. So actually I got to say shout out to Maria, Maria Rotella. Maria Rotella worked with me in this spot that I'm sitting right here, which is just to be UDG's office. And she sat next to me and she had some issues and she was 
given, um, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, Esther, it's actually um, you know, Lexapro, which is what Lexapro. I take, okay. like, which I take now. That, it's a miracle, miracle. She went through it and she knew what to expect. So when I was getting symptoms of things, she would stop, okay, listen, get up, go outside, we're going to drink a water, eat something, uh, change the subject. And if it wasn't her getting me through that, I would have probably said, hey, no, same thing. No, but the main thing and the weirdest thing is I woke up, I don't know how many months it took. I had to think about two months, three months. But I remember getting up one day and it was like I was a different person. There was no, when you get depressed to the point, it hurts. It, it becomes like you get, Ashley was getting headaches. It, it affects every single aspect of your life. Paranoia will creep into your life. And if you think you're going to beat it, it ain't going to happen. So don't be ashamed. Go and get help. Because I had no idea. Imagine me after all these years, them telling me that you've been depressed. Coming from this? Come on. Tell you what? Coming from this? Oh, we can't hear it. Well, no, we can't. I don't have, you know, there's no order, but I'm saying coming from, coming from a dance floor and creating a movement. I still can't believe that I that I did all of this in my life, and I'm sure there are not a lot of stories like mine. And and it was nice for me to actually be able to tell it on my terms because anytime I've been done interviews or done things, it's always about this, this, and this. But to to give people insights, see, if I have one thing to thank, I I, I think I would say I put lot, lots of smiles on people's faces. I may not put a smile on my face at the same time. It would have been nice if I was able to enjoy things. It would have been nice if I was able to have a mentor. But you know what? There are, then there's also the last question. I got news what for you. Change? You mentored a lot of people not even realizing <laughs> you did. You know you what? Yeah, I've gotten that. I, you know, I met my wife on your dance floor. You played a song for me, and it reminds me of this, and I did that and all of that. But Everybody's applauding you. We, we just can't thank you enough. Yeah, I, I can't thank you, man. I just, this was great. I was really looking forward to this because it was, like I said, taken out of my terms. This sense. was a real true house story in right. And I left some shit out. I didn't even tell you so. <laughs> I think that's enough. <laughs> Here's the thing. In order to make an interview of this level, mm -hmm. I must have a personal relationship with the person. Yeah. And that's why my audience has to say thank you for sharing your time with us because there is no way that anybody would ever know what no. you went through unless you tell it. No. No. And we've given you the forum and thank you for sharing your time. Right. You know, thank you. Thank you. Lenny. I mean, you know, I mean, hopefully this is, this is not the end of the story. Hopefully. No, no. It's <laughs> never the end of the story. But the story goes because as, as long as you live, yeah. it's a, the end of your days, you're always going to learn something else. Yes. Fresh is going to happen. But these key parts you spoke mm. about are so groundbreaking. Mm. You know, everyone sees the DJ booth as the magnificent. Everything's great. Yeah. It's the center of the universe. Mm. But nobody realizes, really, unless you're in your shoes or going through the day to day, that what really went on. Mm. And how much everything's coming at you. And yet you said, I still have to smile. 
Right, because it's 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 not a, my story is it, it doesn't have an ending yet. Hopefully, if everything goes well, p- post pandemic, getting back on the road, getting back to making music, getting back to doing it, but enjoying it at least give me that way. This was great. This John Donato's been writing a lot of people. Uh, people from Staten Island been writing on the thing. Everyone's so proud of you. Yeah. They heard yeah. you tell your story. Got a lot off my chest, actually, that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people say, you know what? You tell They tell people too much of your business. No, I tell people what I've learned in order to maybe to help somebody else or just to That's just right. people that, listen, I'm a human just like everybody else. You're mentoring. You're right now doing a, a explanation of what you went through and maybe somebody, one person learns from this. You've already, you've already given a billion dollars away. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good. At least I get to give back here because uh, well, I know I got shit taken from me. <laughs> but man, I have more freaking ups and downs than the freaking cyclone. Oh my god! Well, but again, I want to thank. It's all, it's all good. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate. I appreciate all the support out there from everybody from when I was a kid, the Odyssey days, the 80s, and everything. Everything matters, man. Everything matters. And and I uh, hope, you know, uh, if I could help somebody maybe discover something they didn't know, or if it was just as entertaining enough for you to say, well, you know what? I did not know that. I'm Thank glad. You, Ralphie, let me just say this, everybody. Ralphie D, an icon, for God's sake. Ah. Yeah. Icon, as far as my book. Thank you very much, my brother. Thank you. Icon. Next week we got Brandon Block and Alex P. More icons coming on, and it ain't stopping there. We don't stop. We don't stop here. True House Stories. I can't sum this up as being one of the most groundbreaking interviews. Very heartfelt, touching. Very commissioned. Maybe we can make a movie. I think, yeah, it's you got to write the script now from this. <laughs> from everyone here in New York City, Brooklyn, Bay Ridge, all the way across the oceans to the UK and beyond, I want to give everyone a very good night and we'll see you next week. And don't forget, tomorrow you're going to hear Ralphie talking on Clubhouse. Don't worry, he's a captain. Well, that's right, tomorrow's Clubhouse. And, and this this will get this will go up, right? And it'll be uh, viewable later. Yes. Tomorrow or something, right? Now on Facebook, but here's the thing: he's a true chacchero. He's going to tell you more stuff. Those that don't Google the word chacchero, you'll know that. Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be questions. You know, you said something about this. What did you mean by that? And I know that's coming. I got news to you. There was enough people asking questions. I couldn't even stop you because right. it was too much. What about this, Ralphie? What happened yeah. to the car? They want to know what happened to the car. Yeah. They arrested. Nobody heard the ending. <laughs> we'll talk about it tomorrow. All right. Good night, everyone. Take it easy, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you all for your support. Good night.